You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. All right, welcome to the program. This is episode 329. We're going to talk about the ghosts of World War I today. Uh, very, very, very interesting topic. So stay tuned here on Sunday, November 18th for episode 329 of We Are Libertarians. Warning, this show is for adults, produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Welcome to the program. My name is Chris Spangle. Here on this uh, dreary, gloomy, cold November afternoon. Uh, We had a big ice storm this past week. And you just kind of go, why do I live where I have to scrape ice off of my car? If you're one of our Southern California and Arizona, New Mexico listeners, I just I'm like, oh, why don't why don't I live there where it's warm? It's uh, Zach who contributed to the research for this episode. He lives in Florida and it's 80 degrees there. I'm just so to all of you who are cold, uh, I am one of you, and I think we all go why? But why do I live in a place where I've not seen the sun for two months and I won't for six more? <laughs> Uh, it is uh, enough bitching about the weather. Uh, boy, is that a uh, boy is that an old man sort of thing? <laughs> oh God, this weather, you guys! I need to be like Jason Stapleton or Mark Claire over at Lions of Liberty, and obviously the Jason Stapleton program. They live in L.A. I think Brian McWilliams lives there too. Like, why don't I live in L.A. where it's perfect? Oh yeah, wildfires and taxes and liberals. <laughs> Uh, so I guess every place has its trade-offs, um, but I, 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 I caught myself Googling how to move to New Zealand last week, so who, who knows? If, if this ever turns into a full-time job and I can do it from anywhere, I'm moving somewhere like New Zealand where it's perfect all the time uh, and getting some sunshine. So for, for everybody who's feeling depressed and sad because of seasonal affectation disorder, uh, I salute you, and uh, don't worry, it's going to get better. It'll be May, but it'll get better, I promise. Uh, it is just me on this episode. This is, um, to say I have overstudied for the program today would be an understatement. I have spent every waking moment this week studying for this particular program and uh, had two or three researchers from our research team on this particular program. We're going to be talking about World War One and the legacy of it and uh, the the ills of society that we're facing today originate in that particular era and it really is a fascinating subject it's been one of the more fun things that um, our researchers and I have have looked over and it is really uh, a great topic to to dive into but 
when I have overstudied for something, I have a tendency to not let other people in the room talk because I'm so excited to tell you what I've learned. Uh, so I didn't want to waste anybody's time, and I wasn't sure when I would feel good enough about sitting behind the microphone and kind of outlining it. You know, So if I had set the program for yesterday afternoon at 1 p.m., I don't think it would have been ready fully to do the show like I am at uh, 5.30 on Sunday night. So, uh, you know, it's it's a, a topic like this. There's two ways to do your, your homework for you baby commentators out there. You have to constantly be reading and digging and watching and listening and, and you know, digesting information because the more you input into your brain, the more that comes out. But over time, you know, you ingest so much stuff that you, like, things run together. And so you have to go back and kind of refresh what you've learned and make sure that you don't conflate World War One and Two or Vietnam or, you know, other subjects. And so, yeah, we put a lot of work into this and... It is a fascinating topic. I mean, I guess, I guess to give you, um, World War One, obviously the 100th anniversary of the armistice, uh, November 11th at the 11th hour in two, in 1918 was when uh, the Germans capitulated and gave in to the uh, the Entente powers, and uh, and the war ended. And it is uh, a historical moment that sets off a chain of events for the rest of the century, things that we're still feeling 100 years later. Uh, it was, to go, to go back in time, leading up to World War I, there had been a 100-year peace, essentially. After Napoleon was defeated, there was uh, not much of a desire to have any more European wars, and... It led to a time of greater colonialism and expansion of empires. Britain, Britain, I think, I think the number was like one quarter of the earth was ruled by Britain at one point. And you had these European powers start to expand into colonialism and take over. They were interested in conquering other territories, not just themselves, because they had built up such naval powers. And so there, there was a hundred years of peace between the European powers. And it was also the breakdown of the monarchical system. And you went from a time in human history, which as far back as many people can remember, you had the rule by kings, essentially. And in the 19th century, in the 1800s, for those of you who went to public school, uh, you had the, the transition into more democratic forms of government. You had... Um, parliaments po- start to pop up, uh, constitutions, for instance, in Austria-Hungary, started in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, popped up a- in Europe. And you see also socialism start to creep up. You see Marx and his ideas creep in. Uh, and as the oppressed uh, start from the bottom, essentially the people who had been exploited by the elite by the king and his court in many of these European countries as they got a little more freedom there was a little more they were a little more ready to punish the people who had exploited them and that's that's really sort of where these you start to see the mobilization of um, you know the the Marxists the socialists the Bolsheviks in Russia that's why those ideologies were so attractive 
And in World War One, around that time, this is really the end of four empires. It's the end of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. It's the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It is, uh, for all intents and purposes, the end of the German Empire, which was just really a newer empire uh, under Bismarck. It was really formed out of the ashes of the Napoleonic Wars. And the Russian Empire obviously collapses by the end of World War One, And so you see out of World War One crop up three, three ideologies that hadn't existed in human form before that really ruled the 20th century or the 1900s, again, for those of you in pu- who went to public school. To go to that joke again, um, <laughs> you had the communists, uh, you had the fascists, and you had the liberal international order. Now, because many of us, or all of us, I would presume most of you listening, are in the West, in Western countries or America, um, but we may have several listeners uh, who, who grew up under other other systems. But the liberal international order is something that you may not be as you're very familiar with it because you live under it, but it, you're much more familiar with fascism and communism. And the reason is that the uh, countries who are under the banner of the liberal international order want you to see competition or enemies in the communist or fascist system so you feel good about the state that you have, uh, the state in which you live. And uh, the liberal international order comes about after the uh, after World War One, and really gets set in place after World War Two. And it is the idea that democracies will not fight each other because de- democracies and capitalistic market-based systems, market-based countries are not going to go to war because they're too interdependent on each other. And this is something that was championed by Woodrow Wilson, who is probably the most despicable president uh, we're going to talk about. If you've ever read Atlas Shrugged, like I talked about that last episode, like the world that Atlas Shrugged is set in where the government is nationalizing things, that's the Woodrow Wilson administration, really, uh, which we'll examine it towards the end of the program. But uh, the international order... Uh, comes out of that, and you have several different attempts to establish it. The League of Nations, uh, the the peace conference in 1928, the continued attempts to try to get Hitler to kowtow to the liberal order. Uh, And then after World War II, you see the institution of the United Nations, the Marshall Plan, and America essentially becomes the proliferator of democratic governments around the world. And what what you have seen over the last few years is the uh, the uh, since the breakdown of the Soviet Union, uh, where communism was up against the liberal international order, uh, the LIO, the LEO, that's what I'll call it, uh, Wilsonianism. Uh, you you now have well, basically the. The Americans and the European allies, they got a little too happy and a little too overconfident and eroded trust in the in the order. And so liberalism, is, as it is called in international diploma, diplomatic terms, is starting to see erosion. That's why you see people like the Fareed Zakarias of the world, the Madeleine Albrights of the world, constantly wringing their hands about nationalism and authoritarianism. Uh, and b- because it is a rejection of everything that they have tried to p- 
put together over their entire lifetime. Um, and and listen, there's good and bad things about the um, the liberalization of di- uh, diplomatic l- relations. Let's say you obviously have over the over the 20th century and 21st century, you've, you have a rapid expansion of wealth. You have massive, massive uh, wealth expansion in places like India and in South America and in China and Asia as they move towards market economies away from communism and fascism. And it is uh, a great time to be a human being. But there are also, you see stagnant uh, economic growth here in the West. And you see people turning back towards some of the, the same old songs of the 19th and early 20th century. And it rightly concerns many people who believe in democracy. And, um, you know, we're going to do a program at some point about the, uh, you know, liberalism is also called globalism you know, and globalists. Uh, so that may be the shortcut to help you kind of get up to speed here. At some point, we're going to do an episode here on the program where we talk about how libertarians are not nationalists and we're not globalists, we're not uh, we're not socialists, we're not communists. We we have a completely different view of how the world ought to operate, and it's much more localist. Uh, it is much more individualist and uh, much less driven by nations or global governance. Or um, you know ethnic groups, it is really about the definition of, of the individual, uh, and so we're, we check out of those systems. Essentially, we we say, listen, these these are fine. Uh, if I guess if we have to choose, we're obviously going to take you know more of the liberal order where you have democracies. There is some ability to play within the system. You know, here in America, for instance, I can do a podcast that is basically anti-government, and I am under no fear whatsoever of being cracked down on by the national, state, or federal governments. In fact, I'm friends with much of the local officials here, uh, and there there is uh, freedom of speech and freedom of thought and freedom of assembly. And so, you know, obviously, it is it is a better system than fascism, but the 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 liberal order that sprang out of World War II put America front and center as uh, after World War One, during and after World War One and World War Two, America was essentially used as the granary for the world to feed it, and also the banking uh, instrument to essentially re- give the capital to these countries to rebuild. And we also after World War Two. Uh, our government decided to take responsibility for protecting the world and using the American military might to uh, ensure that, uh, as Wilson said, the world is safe for democracy. And so what that has done is that has eventually stagnated our growth. Uh, It has stagnated our ability to uh, do many different things. It has bred hatred for the United States around the world uh, because we are essentially <clears throat> – the, the problem is there was the myth that America was the good guys and that they were um, neutral in interest. And they were not colonialists in in the way that the British in the 1900s were. They, they're they not exploiting 
local economies. And then once the internet came about, then you started to hear the stories of exploitation by American companies around the world. And then everybody went, oh, okay. And then we invaded Iraq. And it was a, a strategic error because everybody went, oh, okay, the good guys who are supposedly using their military might to keep the world steady might act outside of the international order, illegally, quote-unquote, invade Iraq against the wishes of the international community. And that was really the beginning of the end of American predominance in in the world stage. I mean, that was the beginning of the end. And then Barack Obama's administration checked out in a lot of ways and uh, refused to do what, like, George H.W. Bush did, which is invade Syria. You know, he invaded Kuwait to to keep the world order uh, steady. And, and he made America more of a soft power. And then, obviously, there is Donald Trump, who is erratic, who is unpredictable, who is a little more authoritarian in presentation. He says nice things about dictators and then says mean things about the members of the International Order Club. And uh, it's a very confusing time. And so what you see as America starts to exit the stage, China starts to rise up. Uh, which I think is inevitable. There's a book by Graham Allison called uh, Destined for War where it's, it talks about the Thucydides trap. As one great world power fades another great, and another great uh, world power rises, there is an inevitable conflict between the two. And so can China and America come to terms where they don't actually go to war? Um, and the Thucydides trap is based on uh, Sparta and Athens and um, and their wars in ancient Greece. Uh, now, so there there is full fledged panic in the Council on Foreign Relations, the Brooking Institution, the the um, all of these organizations that were formed by members of the Wilson administration, the Wilson Center, uh, the people who attend the Davos meetings and. And uh, who who make up the the elite of people who put together this international order after the Soviet Union fell, and they are panicking because you see nationalists uh, rise in America, and European parties are on the rise. Uh, Putin, obviously, China, Z made himself the dictator there uh, in South American countries, and it threatens all that they have worked to put together. Now. We're going to leave the debate on whether or not all that is good or not to to another show because uh, what the the purpose of this show is to kind of give you some background of the seeds that planted all of this. Uh, not only did World War One plant the seeds for uh, for the liberal international order, but it also planted the seeds for nationalism uh, here at home and the nationalizing of certain. Institutions. The FBI was essentially formed during World War One. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, for instance, interrogated five hundred thousand German Americans. Um, you had uh, Herbert Hoover was basically in charge of the food supply here in America, and the nationalization of many different industries. So we're going to talk a lot about that. I've got a great article from Ralph. Uh, you know, I should have looked this up because he's an Austrian economist. He is. One of the experts on World War One uh, and Marxism and history, and he is a great resource. He works uh, or publishes through the Mises Institute. Ralph Rico, I'm going to say Rico, and I'm fully going to acknowledge that I did not look up her pronunciation. I should have. 
uh, because he deserves more respect for that because he's been instrumental. Um, and uh, he and I think it's Tuli Hunt, um, who uh, Tom Woods had on his show recently, uh, they have been absolutely instrumental as well as Murray Rothbard. And our show notes for this are absolutely extraordinary. They're 25 pages long with tons of links and podcasts and uh, videos and Netflix programs and articles and all kinds of great stuff that you can look up. Um, the basic outline and information from the show. And uh, special thanks to Hody, Johns, Zach Ripple, and myself for doing the research on this. And, uh, yeah, the show notes are fantastic. I, I have, like, five pages just of links that you can click if this interests you. Um, another great book that I that kind of helped fill in, Why Wilson Matters by Tony Smith. Uh, he is certainly not. He is definitely a, a person that is... Uh, he's a globalist. Uh, he's uh, he probably eats babies. Uh, but he he's written a couple books that were very helpful in understanding a lot of this too. So, uh, very very um, if you have a twelfth grade reading level, <laughs> you're still probably going to struggle reading that book. But it, it is uh, it is very helpful in understanding how Wilson helped shape the the future of the world. Uh, so let's start with the beginning of the actual war itself. Let's start with uh, why World War I happened. Uh, there is a great article from Mental Floss. Uh, let me look at the uh, title here. It is 14, re- 14 Reasons World War I Happened and Four Things That Could Have Stopped It. A uh, very good article, and that's going to kind of be the backbone of uh, of our commentary here for uh, the, the lead up to World War One, because it gives many different explanations in in one succinct article. I'm not going to just read the article to you, um, but it is it is a great resource. Um, so it's by a man named Eric Sass. Uh, so. Eric Sass basically put this list together, and uh, the first of the reasons that World War I happened was nationalism. And I should say that as we go through the list of the 14 points as to why World War I happened, you should think about our world today and how many similarities there are between these 14 um, uh, reasons that the war ended up happening and what's going on today. And... The reason I started with kind of a long, brief, uh, a, a brief, long overview. Brief, long? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. But the reason that I kind of gave that overview is that I want you to see that the world was in transition from one style of governance to a completely different style of governance. And I think we're in a very transitional period as, as they exited the Industrial Revolution and you had a rising middle class. You had many people who, before World War One, you started to see in England, for instance, for the first time in human history, that if you had any interest, you could go and be a part of a club that catered to that interest. You had leisure. It's, it's the rise of the leisure class. And, and so as the Industrial Revolution kind of steadies itself, um, you, you, you have greater wealth in the middle class and the world was not in a uh, it was not in a, in a place where it was in great turmoil it was but it wasn't and it's very 
similar to today. We all feel in chaos. We all feel this like unhappiness with how the world is going, that everything's on the wrong track. But at the same time, the standard of living has never been higher. The there's really no reason to be unhappy. <laughs> and so but things are changing and you have new tools of communication. Um, just as you had radio and the telegraph and the telephone begin to change the way that people communicate. We have the Internet today. People were able to move more quickly than ever before. Uh, People were able to travel. Uh, People started to take vacations. Um, Now, granted, this was before toilet paper was invented, but it was an absolutely stunning time in the early 1900s when everything completely changed and you started to see the growing pains of shifting from a monarchical society to more democratic institutions within these countries. And the growing pains, unfortunately, were World War One and World War II, and they were greatly exacerbated and prolonged and caused the death of millions of people because of central planning and because of central banking and because of government policy. And if uh, the government hadn't hadn't tried to help, then uh, things wouldn't have been as worse. Just as 2008 wouldn't have been so long, it wouldn't have taken until 2015 to recover because the government tried to help and they tried to steal money, essentially. So we're in a transitional period as we go from a period of democratic institutions, nationalism, city-states, into maybe something completely different. And I think libertarians have to be on the forefront of describing what the next world looks like, what the next form of government looks like. And the next form of government needs to be self-government. It needs to be individuals living for their own purposes. And people say, well, you know, what about – you can't not have government. (laughs) What are you, a fool? But what you have to understand and maybe impress upon your friends, but you have to get it first, is that in many ways the government is largely irrelevant in our daily choices. Now, we focus so much and almost make an idol of the government – and hating it, that we we become consumed by it, we become transfixed by its power over us. But uh, you know, we live in a libertarian state most of the time, and I think it's a great argument for converting people to a post-government way of thinking. Um, think of it this way, okay? Do you not murder people, or do you not steal from people because of a law? I think most of us choose not to murder or steal because it actually violates our own conscience and not because there's a law against it. It's just we don't we wouldn't do that. It's not part of our values. Uh, Those who would murder have no regard for the law anyways. And in a libertarian society, there would still be forms of punishment. It just may look different on the macro level. But to the individual who is guilty, punishment for their crime is not going to look all that different. And most of us choose to ignore victimless crime laws like traffic laws or drug laws because we actually practice self-government. We know our personal limits, and those with the ability to self-govern do so regardless of the law, but increased personal responsibility is a great teacher. So we, we will do drugs or we will speed based on our abilities. And if we have um, an inaccurate view of our abilities, 
then a personal responsibility like wrecking your car is a great way to teach you that you shouldn't do that anymore. Uh, and pe- people people disregard those laws anyways. You disregard laws on speeding or some disregard seatbelt laws, for instance. Uh, so how would services like fire and trash pickup be arranged, for instance, in a post-government society? Well, you have to think about it. Does the small business owner contact a government agency and ask for business plans or hiring suggestions or marketing advice? No. They see a problem and they organize a solution. They go and they seek out other individuals that can help solve the problems that they have. Like, I don't have enough capital, so they go to a banker or they go to a staffing agency or they go to a marketing firm or they go to friends and family to help with some of those things. Individuals in a libertarian society actually network together solutions that will solve their immediate and long-term needs for their local community. And so what we have to do is outline that, listen, as we transition into a robot-driven economy, we have to we have the ability to shake off the chains of government that drives us into war, that drives us into inflationary policy, monetary policy, that essentially steals our productivity for its own desires. And the best form of government is no government or very, very limited government. And the, the, well, that sounds scary. No, you have to realize that you already kind of exist in that state. And in a world where uh, productivity is focused on, uh, I don't want to say a life of pleasure, but a life of fulfilling your own desires as opposed to being a cog in a machine is going to look very much different uh, than the the, uh, era governed by government. And so I think we have to be leaders in outlining what a world looks like in a post-government era. And it really comes down to our local communities making decisions for themselves and casting off these international orders or national institutions and saying, I'm going to focus on my local community. And I think many people will respond to that. And I think if you look at the results of this last election, people are looking for answers. They're looking for uh, cheaper health care. They're looking for better economies. They're looking for solutions to their problems. And the Republicans and Democrats are not offering those solutions. And the Democrats are becoming a regional party for just urban areas. The Republicans are becoming a regional party for just rural areas. And the suburbs are really going to be where the battle is fought. Again, the middle class determines the future of society. And libertarians can really appeal to white-collar people if they start to articulate a vision of the future that, uh, that brings together harmony and prosperity as opposed to just the same old uh, war and misery that we see in World War I and then World War II and then Vietnam and then the endless war in Afghanistan. So we really have to be more visionary and uh, less uh, critical and I, I am as guilty as anyone else. But uh, we have a real opportunity to explain to people the best way to move forward in, as we move into a new era of human existence. And so I think if you went back 100 years and you said, listen, things are about to radically change over the next century, but it's going to be the bloodiest century in, in the world, more people are going to die in this century than existed in most centuries past because of government. Because of what is what is the term? Is it patricide? 
I think that's when your dad kills you. Death by government. Death by government. Gosh, democide. Yes, democide killed... Um, it doesn't say, but Death by Government by Rudolf Rummel. Looks like it's on, uh, on the internet if you Google it. So, uh, so as we kind of look through this and look at World War, back at World War One, you have to think about it in terms of a world in transition from its previous form of governance to its next form of governance, and what does that look like? People like Woodrow Wilson had a vision for the future. And unfortunately, his vision for the future was mostly wrong, but also not as bad as, you know, democide. <laughs> I mean, he still killed people. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the, the United States government poisoned 10,000 Americans to death. So if you, if you drank alcohol during Prohibition, the government had laced it <laughs> with poison and it killed 10,000 Americans. Uh, Wilson was a eugenist. He was a racist. He was a very terrible person. Um, but he had a vision for the future, and that spoke to people on some level. Um, he was also incredibly arrogant. H.L. Mencken said that uh, he's so pious that uh, he considers himself the next in line if there ever becomes a vacancy in the Holy Trinity. Um, so he was just insufferable, uh, but he, he obviously had plans that he was able to institute um, even if not in his life, it, it, it eventually blossomed. Um, so we have to be those visionaries, and I don't, I don't think we are a lot of times. I think we are more interested in fighting each other than we are actually articulating a vision for, for voters and for regular people to get back into voting. And I'm sorry, those of you who think that voting is violence, um, it's just not how... You, you, this is how change is made, so get involved. Uh, if, and if you are... Um, if you think, well, I'm, uh, I think it's immoral, and I'm not going to participate in that system, then don't pay your taxes. That makes you a little hypocritical. Oh, but it's voluntary. Well, it's not. Uh, yes, voting is voluntary, but isn't it a greater immorality if you pay your taxes and fund the actual death machine? So I'd like to see a little more. I'd like to see our radicals be a little more radical. To be honest, um, I'm not a radical person, but uh, I'd like to see. Thousands of libertarians do ta- tax protests. Don't pay your taxes. Go to jail. Well, the, the, they'll, they'll just use the state violence against you. What better way for you to illustrate that the state is violence than for them to use it against thousands of libertarians? So if you're going to advocate uh, radical positions, then live by it. We need more Cody Wilsons and less Chris Spangles. That's all I'm saying. Uh, so... <laughs> On to the 14 reasons why World War I happened. Uh, nationalism is number one. And uh, Eric Sass writes, In the medieval period, Christianity united Europeans across language and culture. But then the Reformation fractured the universal Catholic Church, and the Enlightenment undermined religion's hold on the collective imagination. Nationalism emerged to fill the spiritual void with an idea of community based, loosely, on shared language and ethnicity. So essentially, the unifying factor in society was religion at a certain point, and then uh, it was replaced by language and ethnicity uh, because they didn't have those societal institutions uh, commanding as much weight as as it did previously before. So religion was a uniting force 
in society and then uh, that broke down and uh, the state became the uniting force. And I think you kind of see that happening in society right now. Um, You have societal institutions, for instance, like the family or religious institutions breaking down and uh, you have people, community organizations aren't as prevalent. People aren't a member of local organizations like the Freemasons or the um, what's another the Lions Club. People people don't go and do that stuff anymore. And I think that is largely being replaced by team sports. And so I think you see a people being involved in in uh, fantasy football as a replacement for community or politics i mean what are the what are the two ways that if if you came to town and you said i'm new to town i have no friends what are some ways that i can meet some people i don't want to go to a religious organization well then i guess join a political organization and so when politics becomes central to our identity it becomes uh it becomes as inseparable as it is right now So Eric Sass writes, by the 19th century, Europeans took it for granted each nation had a distinct character and inhabited sacred, inviolable territory. So when Germany annexed Alsace-Lorraine in 1871, it injured French national pride and provoked revanchism, (laughs) desire for revenge. Uh, So, you know, Alsace was uh, more German and Lorraine was more French, but uh, they believed that it was their territory. And uh, so it was a very big deal. It was it was as big of a deal on the international scene as Russia annexing Crimea, for instance. So there's two issues to look at here. There are taxes and borders. So our complex tax code makes it almost imaginable, unimaginable. Uh, But we would do well to remember that this complexity is quite modern. Auslas-Lorraine was an area full of both French and German citizens, but since taxes were not based on individual income but instead based on importation fees, there was no need to make people in a certain region specify their nationality. So what our research team and I are saying here is that – because you have to pay into this complex tax code system, you are closely identified to the nation of your origin as opposed to your ethnicity, for instance. Um, it doesn't matter where you move. If you if you move to New Zealand, then you still have to pay American taxes. But in the old days, 100 years ago, if you just moved to New Zealand, you're just uh, – you don't pay taxes because there is no income tax in 1900, for instance – you're just living under the system of tariffs that, uh, or import-export taxes that uh, are placed by those governments on goods. Um, so it, it makes it more complex now. So after Germany seized the area, borders became more of an issue uh, in, in uh, 1871, where at one time countries were able to move and even live fluidly. Rigid border design became a hallmark of policy that led directly to World War One. So previously, borders had been more fluid, and then after Alsace-Lorraine, they were not as fluid. They were more uh, protective. Uh, Eric Sass writes, At the same time, nationalism threatened Austria-Hungary, an old-fashioned medieval empire with a dozen nationalities who wanted out. So the tragedy of Austria-Hungary, which was a very forward-thinking country, uh, can't be understated. They were a nation built on diversity of ethnicity. 
and they were one of the first European countries to ratify a constitution. And uh, they both had Austria and Hungary each had a monarch, but both monarchies established an equal partnership and yielded power to that new constitution. Uh, so creating a single political system for two different nations meant adopting policies that embraced both sides. And by granting rights to both sides and ratifying laws that protected each nation's ability to practice their different faiths, languages, and customs, they inadvertently created a place where many other smaller groups found themselves protected by law. So as a result, the country became home to a dozen other smaller nations, including Serbians, Croats, Jews. Uh, with each bringing a different set of customs and traditions to the table, Austria-Hungary became a hotbed for international trade and exchange. So for a brief moment, their collection of citizens had the highest standard of in the world. And so diversity is a strength. And so you, you hear people like Hillary Clinton say, diversity is our strength. And it is a strength. It absolutely is a strength. It is a strength in every sense of the word. So one of the reasons that... Um, um, uh, Argentinians are very beautiful people, for instance, is that they they are a genetic mixture of Europeans and Africans and Asians and Indians from native South to South America. They are a blend of many different um, genetics, and so it creates taller, healthier people. Uh, and ideas are very much the same way. The more people that you can have working on different ideas from different backgrounds and different places in the world and different experiences, the better the world is. That's why people who argue that we should close off our borders, I don't understand it because hospitals right now are desperate for Indian doctors to come here and Asian doctors to come here because they just have a better grasp on some things than Americans do. Because of their their background, their their not their ethnicity, but their um, their living condition and the way that their society and culture is structured, and so we rob ourselves by trying to keep ourselves um, quote unquote pure. And uh, so you see an economic powerhouse grow in Austria Hungary uh, and out uh, out of this diversity. But then scholars and politicians began to place emphasis on involuntary heritage over voluntary alliances. The collection of races, languages, cultures, and religions were taught to compete instead of unify, and Austria-Hungary dissipated under the threat of civil war, uh, not just into Austria and Hungary, but also into the fragmented Balkan states that we see today. So... Would you say America, instead of celebrating its differences and diversity, is being encouraged to compete based on those different races? And oftentimes it's the very people who are preaching diversity who are inflaming those competitions as opposed to unity. Uh, obviously there are racists in the world, but uh, the people who claim to not be racist but yet in use diversity to inflame as a political tool are really, really... Um, doing something very dangerous, as history is showing us. Uh, so the smaller states that made up the Austria-Hungarian Empire ended up becoming easier to conquer, and a nation that would have been close to untouchable instead became a myriad of countries that could be taken over one by one. In World War I, specifically, democratic countries fought against authoritarian countries, and had Austria-Hungary been able to maintain its alliance under the Constitution... Germany likely never would have attempted such a war. 
Instead of facing the opponent of a single country unified under the banner of freedom, Germany gained an ally by appealing to the leaders of these diminutive nations who are now seeking power for themselves instead of liberty for their citizens. So these these patchwork, and I, this is always an argument that you kind of see in America, well, we're stronger if we have a central government. No, we're stronger if we have states. The centralization argument is always kind of the one that uh, wins out in human history, and it is because the people who get to control the central power have more power for themselves. And they don't care about your liberty. They care about their power. And so that's why it's very important to make sure that you don't centralize government because it allows uh, an abuse of power by people who get stronger and stronger as power gets centralized. Um, but uh, so number two, the number two reason why World War I started, racism and social Darwinism. Uh, Eric Sass writes, nationalism was never particularly rational, but any contradictions could be papered over with with racism and social Darwinism. Racism, another product of the Enlightenment, linked human and cultural differences to variations in appearance that supposedly corresponded to fundamental biological traits like intelligence. In the 19th century, racism got a more scientific gloss from social Darwinism, which applied the theory of natural selection to human races and locked in a struggle for survival. Front and center was the rivalry between the Slavs and the Germans. Um, so, you know, while nationalism is a frightening indoctrination, uh, now we're switching to our research here, uh, it, it is a belief of controllable cultural superiority. Racism is more insidious, fostering a belief that superiority is someone's uncontrollable DNA and not controllable lifestyle. So the, the the problem is that when you start separating people based on race and ethnicity, you're now dividing people who live within a border. And uh, when you're fighting people who are, uh, I, I am a, I'm a Russian and I hate the Germans. Well, at least you're united as Russians. But once you start dividing people based on ethnicity and race, then your neighbor becomes your enemy. And it really starts to weaken uh, the foundations and fabric of your society. So our, our researcher, Hody Johns, actually majored in theology, and uh, he, wanted to, he wanted me to, to, to get across to you this note about social Darwinism. He writes, When we discuss religious issues, it's easy for people to feel personally attacked through association. Most Christians feel no association with the Westboro Baptist Church or Catholic pedophiles. However, speakers will carelessly call these groups Christians no matter how far out of step they are with the tenets of Christ, simply because they, are either use, they either use or hide behind that mask of faith. My study showed me how saying things like Christianity is responsible for millions of deaths is not just reprehensible and ignorant, but downright bigoted and idiotic. Uh, we must apply this same rule when we examine social Darwinism. Darwin himself never called for sterilizing blacks or murdering Jews. While a select group of atheists supported such practices, this is hardly in line with any scientific aesthetic value. Uh, atheistic value, I should say. Christians would do well to remind themselves how hurtful and mindless it is to be blamed for the wickedness of the Crusades or Manifest Destiny before saying something like atheism is responsible for both world wars and the Holocaust. While some prominent atheists contributed to the cause and defended those contributions behind their beliefs. 
It was political convenience and not religious doctrine that enabled the atrocities of the 20th century. And, uh, and I agree with that. I think the, uh, <laughs> the, a lot of our atheist friends here in the libertarian movement love to blame religion for all the world's deaths. When I talked earlier about religion being a uniting force, I'm sure several of you wrinkled your forehead and said, but Spangle, uh, what about the Crusades? Uh, what you have to understand is the Crusades were about political power. It was not about religion. Yes, religion was used to justify it, but I would argue that patriotism and nationalism are a form of secular religion, and they're tools that people use to maintain or gain power for themselves. They are uh, not inherently evil. Loving your country isn't inherently an evil prospect. It is the person who is using that to inflame people against one another for a desired outcome for their own manipulative powers. Uh, that That's when it becomes a real issue. Um, so... So social Darwinism in and of itself is stupid <laughs> because uh, human beings are just human beings. There's, there's no discernible difference in humans. So, so let's, let's take dogs, for instance. All dogs belong to the same genus, Canis, so they're all canines. However, they differ in terms of intelligence, size, hair, and ability. These different types of dogs, whether Labrador or Chihuahua, while they can mate, they have different attributes and genetic alleles, and we can category, categorize them by species. Keep in mind that we did not find out all humans were genetically the same species until advanced genome mapping, uh, mapping began in the 1970s and 80s. Astonishingly, we don't even have a subspecies. We're all just homo sapiens. Uh, so what appears to be different races are actually just tendencies amongst the same genetic alleles and not different alleles altogether, as was assumed. By observing that every other organism in the animal kingdom had a genus with an ever-expanding species, social Darwinists applied the same rule to humanity as well. The idea was twofold. For the first part, mixing the human species around would, around would result in stupid mixed breeds like dogs. And the second part was teaching that if we only permit superior humans to breed, we would have a superior race. This specific study and practice is called eugenics. This was the, um, the, the foundation of Planned Parenthood, for instance. Many of you may not know this, but Margaret Sanger was a dedicated eugenicist. She was also an avowed racist. She, she absolutely hated blacks, and it, and it leads back to a time in her childhood where uh, 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 I think it was a black man uh, came in and, and killed, him. I think, her father, maybe? Um, I'm, I'm just spitballing here off the top of my head. You can look it up if you don't believe me. But uh, she had a lifelong uh, dislike of black people, and it was her subversive mission to start Planned Parenthood to kill uh, specifically black babies to eliminate them from the gene pool. And uh, 300,000, um, well, I'm going to trigger some people, but 300,000 children were killed last year by Planned Parenthood alone. Uh, so it is uh, you, it has its roots in the eugenic movement. Uh, here in Indiana, Indiana was a very progressive state and was one of the first states to outlaw eugenics after instituting eugenics in a very serious way. Uh, the Nazi T4 program... Um, was the beginning of the Holocaust. That's really how they kind of 
got their chops. They they actually euthanized anyone with disabilities of mental or physical varieties uh, and uh, certain ethnic groups they didn't like, but specifically starting with people with Down syndrome or or other like heart defects or other issues. And they, that's how they found out that uh, carbon monoxide and other gases could be used to put people to death in a very quick way. And uh, so eugenics is a very uh, significant part of not only world history but American history uh, and a big reason why World War One and World War Two happened because people had these beliefs that were untrue that there were differences in the species uh, or that people were different species uh, when in fact that couldn't be further from the truth. It's just um, different expressions. It's not... Not even different, any different genetics. And you still hear people saying this today. For instance, um, Putin blamed Olympic losses on mixed bloods. And World Cup coach Carlo Ancelotti explained his losses by not having enough pure blood Italians. Like, this is in the last couple of years. So people still have these stupid beliefs that there's a difference in the races. Um so it became um, it, it became something that was used within borders to purify uh, the purify the uh, listen. It's a, it's a fundamental principle. It's it's who owns your body. Uh, do you own your body? Do you have the right to control your body, or does the state do? Does the collective does the collection of citizens that raised their hand and voted? It, it's literally the same as you sitting in the center of a basketball arena and people voting on whether you live or die. It, it may not be as direct, but it is the same power. Uh, imagine if you were, uh, and this is why I oppose the death penalty, because I don't want to grant the power, the ability to put people to death, because I don't think that it is appropriate for the state to uh, put people to death. Uh, they, don't, they should not have that power in war or in the death penalty. And uh, if you're sitting in the middle of a basketball arena and 51% majority stands up and says you should die, that isn't, that isn't moral. That isn't right. Uh, and that is, that is exactly what happened in the early days of eugenics. It was the state saying that they had a right to put you to death. And it was a very – it's the very uh, chief uh, – it's the very chief antithesis, I would say, of libertarianism. So number three was imperialism. And imperialism and, and the period of imperialism before this uh, had, had a great impact. For instance, many of the colonial states uh, that had been uh, imperialized in Asia and South America, in Africa, turned to radical ideologies like fascism or communism in the 20th century because they had been exploited by the European powers or, you know, Japan in the case of Asia, for instance. But imperialism um, was a big reason. Eric Sass writes, The technological progress during the Renaissance and Enlightenment gave Europeans a big advantage over less advanced societies, enabling conquest and colonization around the world. By the 19th century, European nations were competing to amass global empires. But Britain, France, and Russia had a head start on the latecomers like Germany, whose desire for a place in the sun was yet another source of conflict. And I would add in America to this as well. America started having imperial expansionism ideas in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Panama Canal, for instance, uh, and uh, the, 
the, the uh, Puerto Rico, for instance. Why, do, why is Puerto Rico an American state? It's because we believed that anyone, anyone in the Western Hemisphere was our property. Uh, that's that's really the way that they looked at it. Um, so Germany considered themselves equal with these other global superpowers, but they didn't have the global part of the game because they had really come up in the late 1800s, and they began seizing all these little countries around them that uh, that spoke German. Does that sound familiar? Uh, I mean, even Putin does that. Well, all the people in Crimea speak uh, Russian, so we should be allowed to take the Crimea because they speak Russian. Okay. Uh, History reveals some miscalculations. Many of these smaller countries had military and economic alliances with larger countries that were concealed from the public and, most importantly, unknown by the German leadership. And so as Germany goes in and starts to annex this land or take over this land, they don't realize that some of these people have made secret uh, alliances with uh, some of the other powers like Russia and, and England and France. And and in some cases, the the people who were in the militaries or the upper echelons of some of these governments didn't even know that these alliances had been made. And so when Russia annexes these territories or takes them over – the they may be taken over willingly by the local uh country but england goes hey that's that they have an alliance with us and so that starts to raise the temperature uh so they believed that if they seized control of smaller countries they would increase their overall strength but that was a falsehood because all of this new land and adding to their diversity in in Germany meant that they had to start defending more territory. They had to defend new borders and and uh, local populations that didn't want to be annexed. And so it ended up leading to too many fronts in both of these world wars. Uh, number four, the number four reason World War One happened: uh, Germany lagged behind in colonies. Its incredible growth at home scared France and Britain. From 1870 to 1910, Germany's population soared 58% to 65 million. Uh, They felt that it was their duty to proliferate. France just edged up 11% to 40 million people. And from 1890 to 1913, German steel uh, production increased ninefold to 18.9 million tons, more than Britain at 7.7 million tons, and France at 4.6 million combined. So Germany also had the best rail network, and it enabled more mobility and growth. Uh, So they felt they deserved a bigger role in world affairs, but they went about it all the wrong way. So it wasn't just the the growth that scared the rest of the world. It was how they grew. And as European nations grew in imperialistic ways, the Dutch, the Germans, uh, the Dutch, the Russians, the English, they they went to other areas of the globe and got resources from those areas, and that's how they grew. Germany grew from within, and so that really scared people because Germany's expansion was focused on guns, bullets, tanks, and battleships, and uh, and it was done in-house as opposed to going to other places. Uh, so it made them a little more stable in the eyes of the Entente powers. Um the naval's arms race, number five, Eric uh, Sass writes, Kaiser Wilhelm II's pet project was the German Imperial Navy created in collaboration with um, General Admiral, 
Admiral Alfred von Tippitz, a sailor who happened to be Germany's most skilled politician. Uh, but their naval obsession alienated Britain, an island nation that simply couldn't afford to yield control of the seas. In the first twenty, in the first years of the twentieth century, Britain responded by building more ships and entering an informal alliance with its traditional rival, France. The Entente collab- the Entente Cordiale, the friendly understanding. So, you know, if you know anything about Western history, France, France, and Britain were constantly at each other's throat. England was constantly fighting with France, and then in the in the late 1900s, they actually formed the Entente Cordiale, where they are going to Germany because Germany's imperial ambitions and massive growth, it forces those two long-time rivals together to start, um, to, to start uh, working together and agree to combat the, the German expansion in whatever way they can. Uh, so this is a great lesson for the modern day, that if you start building a lot of bombs, if you start building up a navy, if you start building up um, bombs, aircrafts, guns, you're gonna put, you're gonna make everybody else uneasy, and all of a sudden everybody else is gonna go. Well, if they're building all these these weapons of war, then maybe we ought to as well. And so, you if you look at it, and you go, okay, well, and this is happening in the world today. So America, for instance, competes against all of these different contracts with Saudi Arabia, for instance. They say, listen, we need to win this contract for American uh, contractors because if we don't, then the Russians or the Chinese are gonna get it. And so what's happening now is not just uh, us building up our own uh, weapons infrastructure. We're trying to sell weapons to uh, developing countries because we don't want the other guys to to. So we're arming <laughs> these other sections of the world. So uh, it's, it's an important lesson that we have failed to see as we move along that as you as you start to build up your arsenal. So does everybody else. Uh, number six, the Germans feared encirclement, and uh, Eric Sass writes, even though it was Germany's own stupidity that caused Britain and France to pull closer together, the Entente Cordiale, on top of the Franco-Russian alliance of 1892, inspired Germans' fear of, con- of a conspiracy to encircle Germany. So even though Wilhelm and Nicholas II of Russia were, were cousins, uh, Russia and France actually made an alliance in 1892, um, and so this 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 made them on both sides of their borders. It made the Germans afraid. Uh, so there there was actually a scheduled meeting between Germany, France, and Britain to talk about scaling down each other's each of their navies, uh, so that a trade could continue. But Wilhelm II, the Kaiser of Germany, released a plan detailing a massive expansion, and it freaked out the British and the French so much that uh, they did it in secret. They held the meeting in secret without Germany there and doubled their efforts to eventually start expanding their military. And so because Germany tried to look too tough, too over the top, it ended up back backfiring. Uh, and Germany had to end, they ended up having to carry out the military expansion because they couldn't, they couldn't uh, say, well, we were just kidding. So they actually had to follow through, which, which used a ton of resources that, um, wasn't wasn't expected at that particular time and uh it made france and britain go to russia and say hey there's a serious threat with germany here are you do you have our back if anything happens and russia said of course of course uh you know nicholas was also a cousins with (laughs) with uh 
I think he was a nephew of Queen Victoria or a grandson of Queen Victoria. Um, I don't think that Queen Victoria was she was not the the um, the queen at that time. I think she had passed away. But she, you know, Nicholas in Russia, the uh, the, the king who, who was king during World War One. Let me look this up. Let me give you information instead of guessing. Do 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 do. King of Britain during World War One. Uh, king George V, yes. And so uh, his father was King Edward II. And uh, let's see here. So, yes, they were all related to king- Queen Victoria. Uh, queen Victoria was uh, King George V's grandmother. And uh, he was related to, and they all look alike. Kaiser Wilhelm looks like uh, Tsar Nicholas II, who looks like King George. Uh, but that didn't that didn't really matter. So they actually started, you know, Russia had ambitions of moving down into the Balkans and taking over those uh, territories. Uh, they all had designs on the Ottoman Empire because they knew that was on its last legs. Russia had actually lost some territory in a war with Italy that they wanted back, I think involved Africa as well. And so Italy was playing both sides in this because they were like, eh, we know we're going to get carved up by somebody here. So uh, so, so they, they uh, the Germans, because they're feared of being encircled, they start building up arms, building up arms, building up arms. And then that leads to number seven, an arms race on land. So the paranoia in Germany um, now... Uh, p- pits uh, Austria-Hungary, now under German occupation against France, Russia and Britain, later Italy got sucked into it too. So from 1910 to 1913, the expenditures by Europe's great powers increased $1.67 billion to $2.15 billion in U.S. dollars today. So it prompted both sides to wonder, you know, would it be better just to fight now before the enemies grew even stronger? Uh, so, you know, the Archduke Ferdinand is, is kind of credited as the beginning of World War One, uh, but it, it, it's it's a small event. It is a very tiny event, and so the Archduke Ferdinand was Austrian royalty, and he was a low-ranking member of the family. He had no real power uh, except the reputation of his title, and he was killed by an obscure non-state-sponsored terrorist in Serbia. Um. Although there there was some government backing, which is why uh, the I think it's the Croats didn't want anybody snooping or the Serbians the Serbs didn't want anybody snooping around because they did have something to do with it, uh, but it was still a very small thing, and somehow this cost the lives of millions in America, Britain, Germany, and Russia. Um, the problem is the weaponry growing in the the weaponry that began to build up. You know, in previous times, you had these gentlemanly wars. Think of think of uh, you know the American Revolution, where you have the redcoats on one side, the Americans on the other, and then shoot and they fire. That's gentlemanly war. That's that's how it happened during the Napoleonic Wars. But you have rifles and cannons. Now you've got machine guns and much much bigger cannons. And uh, this weaponry is growing more devastating in its ability and in its size and scope. And you have numbers of population rapidly increasing. And it becomes clear to some that war was going to happen. 
and brutality might be assuaged if the war was fought over something minor of minor significance rather than waiting for something of major significance to to happen and so people actively thought in these governments that maybe we ought to just have a small war over something stupid and kind of release the tension release the pressure valve uh, and unfortunately you you can't just do that um, I should also go back to say to, to the um, idea of you know th- the Germans um, the the Americans Donald Trump specifically have recently said that they don't want to go into talks over nuclear weapons and <laughs> you should do that you should definitely do that part of what the international order gets credit for is really attributed which really should be attributed to nuclear weapons is the 75 years of peace so after you know which wasn't even realistic i mean because america has been involved in korea vietnam uh, several South South American wars, uh, two Iraq wars, Afghanistan. That's seven that I'm counting off the top of my head here. Uh, but you know the the international order gets credit for this long period of peace, and without it, we just it wouldn't be as peaceful. No, it's because people have nuclear weapons. That's what made the Cold War a somewhat cold war. You know, despite many people dying because of the domino theory and because of territorial expansion and trying to fight by the communists and the Americans and the the allies trying to fight that expansion uh, in Korea and Vietnam, for instance. But the 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 real reason that there was never any kind of massive world war is because nobody because everybody has nuclear weapons. It has nothing to do with the national order in the UN and all these fantasies that the, these fairy tales that these um, the freed Zacarias of the world tell themselves at Davos. It's because nobody wants to nuke each other. Uh, and so yeah, we want to end nuclear war. Uh, we want to end nuclear warheads. But also at the same time, it's kind of like eh, it's kind of kept us from slipping into a world war. But we do have weapons that could absolutely end humanity in a single day, and that is kind of a stupid thing to uh, have laying around. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the Americans are wishy-washy on having talks about nuclear weapons. And so there's another little repeat of history where Germany, you know, Donald Trump says, we're going to build way more nuclear weapons, and then we're not going to attend this uh, conference on nuclear proliferation and so Germany and the and the Europeans have it without us. Okay, well then that that's not good, guys. <laughs> so so take these lessons of history. Uh, another factor, number eight, in why World War hap- World War One happened was Russian growth. So as Eric Sass writes, just as Germany's economic expansion scared Britain and France, a few years later Russia's rapid growth terrified Germany and Austria Hungary. From 1900 to 1913, industrialization sent Russia's gross national product rocketing 55%. Can you imagine 55% growth in a decade to $388 billion in today's U.S. dollars? Over the same period of its population soared 26% to $168 million. More than Germany and Austria-Hungary combined. In July 1914, the German popular... The German philosopher Kurt Reisler, a close friend of Chancellor Betham Hollenweg, wrote gloomily, the future belongs to Russia. So there's a parallel here with China. 
1913, it looked like it had you had the Germans saying the future belongs to Russia because their population growth, their exploding economy, the Russians are the absolute future. And then within four years, the uh, the populations of those countries topple that particular government. And so we hear all this talk about how powerful Japan is in 19 in the 1980s and how they're going to overtake the Americans. And then now they've had stagflation for 30 years, and they're, they're, they're a power, but not what they were. In China, you have a massive amount of growth taking place, and everyone's saying the future belongs to China. But they have a dictator in charge now, and uh, the, the economics of that society are very fragile still. And you never know what can possibly happen. And so when somebody says the future belongs to China, remember that somebody in Germany in 1913 said the future belongs to Russia, and then Vladimir Lenin happened four years later, so because of war. You know, when you look at this, social Darwinism and the responsibility of proliferation took a stronger hold on Russia than any of the rest of Europe, as evidenced by the numbers. Uh, proliferation, meaning people felt that it was their duty to advance their race, their ethnicity, and people were breeding like rabbits. And that's the opposite of what's happening today. You hear, um, you know, America and Europe is in decline. The West is in decline because they're not actively having children. And uh, that is that's that's spells very bad news uh, for the West, in all honesty, because one of the ways that uh, you have economic growth is that you have new labor force. And if you're not producing new labor force, then you're in trouble. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that China doesn't have the two-child policy anymore. They're like, why are we stagnating our own growth? Let's have some babies. You know, making babies is great. So Russia was satisfied to take over other countries nearby instead of going overseas, making their battlefronts less multidimensional than the countries they would going, end up going to war with. So Russia didn't go and try and take over African and South American and Middle Eastern countries. They just kind of took over the little Slavic countries around them. Russia had a very um, – Russia – and Putin still says this – Russia had the view that any Slavic peoples ought to be under the auspices of the Russian government, of the Russian crown. And so they wanted to take over any Slavic nations, anything in the Balkans, for instance, or East, East or Eastern Europe. Uh, and so Russia had a very uh, strong desire to complete, complete the set of Slavic nations. Uh, number nine in the reasons why World War I happened was Turkish decline. As Germany and Russia grew more powerful, the Ottoman Empire was on its last legs. Uh, and Turkey today, this is my own note, Turkey today is trying to reestablish the Ottoman Empire and control the – and be the caliphate of the Middle Eastern world. So is Saudi Arabia and so is Iran. And so that's, that's what's happening. They're all, they're all fighting for dominance. The Ottoman Empire at this time was on its last legs, creating instability across the Balkans and Middle East. The First Balkan War, 1912-1913, the Balkan League, Serbia, Bulgaria, Greece, and Montenegro carved up most of the empire's remaining European territories. Uh, so they were down by Greece and, and the, you know, where uh, Czech, you know, uh, the Kosovo Wars were fought, if, if you're old enough to remember those. <laughs> um, 
Serbia's conquest of Albania put it on a collision course with Austria-Hungary, which didn't want Serbia to gain access to the sea. Meanwhile, Russia was plotting to conquer Armenia, Britain, and France were eyeing Syria and Iraq, and Germany feared it would be left out again. So there is a parallel to the Middle East now that there was 100 years ago. With no stability, the Middle East became an obvious battlefield for other superpowers who eyed the devastation through the eyes of imperialism i.e. taking the resources of those particular countries, such as oil and silicon and and other natural resources. Uh, The failing Ottoman Empire yielded several territories who were initially excited to gain independence, but unfortunately unaware of the lurking danger from external superpowers, saw the fledgling countries as easy easy targets. Uh, And so the Ottoman Empire on its last legs became a... uh, the victim of the spoils of war. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what happened there because it has many ramifications for what's happening today. Uh, so number 10 is probably the number one reason that you hear all these secret treaties. Everybody had secret treaties with each other. Uh, they had a complex alliance system, and it was confusing because all the agreements were secret. And the treaties didn't even have to exist to cause trouble. German German fear of a possible secret Anglo-Russian naval convention fueled paranoia about encirclement, even though no agreement had ever been reached. So it got so all these alliances got to a point where imagined alliances started. It, like there weren't real alliances, but in the minds of the players, there were, and those are just as powerful as actual alliances. Uh, so this this really outlines the need for government transparency because a lot of what happened with these secret alliances between the governments and the militaries of these particular European powers, the people didn't know anything about this. People in the government didn't even know about this. Um, you know, so where is it? Uh, much like today, big countries make deals and alliances with a myriad of other nations without making the details public. Our research team writes, as a result, no economist truly knows how to invest globally and no military leader knows their real enemies. As a result, everyone in business and national security treats each other like villains. Much like today, the governments of these nations keep the details secret for our protection. But if the secrecy led to the deaths of millions of our youth in the last century and gives us strategic alliances, with a terrorist-friendly country in the Middle East, is it really protection or bureaucratic convenience that treats these treaties uh, like they should be secret? And that's a great point. You know, how many of us actually know what's in the new NATO? Or uh, how many of us? Yeah, how many of you can name a NATO alliance uh, which has been expanded? How many of you know what countries are in that? How many of you know what that is? How many of you know what what is in the what is in the deal that Trump just struck with Canada and Mexico? So our government is constantly um, signing us up for all of these various things, and we don't know anything about it. And it has real consequences for our life and death. And uh, we should demand transparency at all costs because it does really affect us. So number eleven. Uh, why World War One happened was international law didn't really exist. So there, there was a development of a global economy in the 19th century, but there was no real system of international law that could restrain one state. So they had something called the Peace Palace, where uh, it was like a forum of arbitration of international disputes, but they had no power to enforce their decisions. So they were basically a joke, and not much has changed. And and really. 
when you look at it, what what does the UN or the League of Nations? So yes, no no international governance ha- was in place, and the argument from the internationalists now is that you know the World Trade Organization, uh, the NATO, the United Nations, the 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 World Criminal Court. These these are all institutions that help prevent war. Uh, but in in a lot of cases, do they? Do they really? Uh, for instance, the World Trade Organization just had several complaints filed by China against the United States. That only serves to inflame relations because now they're filing lawsuits against us and filing for sanctions against the United States. So we're going to ratchet sanctions back. Sanctions are an act of war. It is it is an aggressive stance towards another nation. So uh, the, these these organizations are largely useless uh, and serve to only complicate a lot of matters um, and get in the way of actual free trade. Number twelve, trouble at home. World War One wasn't just the result of international conflict. Domestic tensions played an important role too. In Germany, the in Germany, the conservative elite was were frightened by the steady political gains of socialists opposed to militarism, and tried to use foreign policy to drum up patriotism and distract ordinary Germany Germans from problems on the home front. Uh, it was libertarian socialists actually that were encouraging demilitarization. Uh, It's hard to imagine a time when socialism was not synonymous with authoritarianism, but it was uh, under the banner of liberty that uh, socialists in that time period were calling for policy that would stop the war before it started. Uh, They were silenced under the cry of patriotism and accused of being traitors for promoting a de-escalation technique. Those of you who lived through 2003, remember a time when anybody who was anti-war was considered a traitor. The Dixie Chicks' career was ended because they went, they were overseas and said that George Bush shouldn't go to war in Iraq. And uh, the, the, the ridiculousness of the argument that you can say that in America, but you can't say that overseas has never been a rational uh, – like, what a dumb argument. And so – the patriotic fervor of 2003 and the uh, the bloodlust that this country had, and, and I was a part of that, to be honest. Um, actually, next week is the 15th anniversary of the time that I held a pro-war rally uh, because I was a good little neocon. Um, listen, we all do things in college we aren't proud of. But, um, you know, it, it was anybody who was anti-war was silenced under patriotism, and that's one of the harmful effects of the term patriotism, of the ideology of patriotism and nationalism, which I don't see a lot of difference between those two. Uh, it is a tool to silence people who dissent from the government's position. So we have to be careful about those terms. Uh, now, as I told you, Russia embraced the pan-Slavism, uh, where they were basically... Uh, going to be in control of all Slavs. Uh, and this is more about racism. It's associating a group of people with a set ideals. It was rumor, rumored that Slavs were incapable of thinking otherwise. Their wrong ideas in these countries attributed to them uh, that they were a, a, part, a lower rung on the evolutionary state. You saw this with Hitler in Germany. He would do whatever he wanted to Russians because they were less than. Uh, they were not, they were not uh, Aryans. Um, so by appealing to the majority who believed they were in a higher evolutionary state, they threw out the ideas the Romanov minorities had and among the ideals, a hope for peace. Uh, so 
number 13 is part of the probably the biggest factor but also the hardest to understand uh, number 13 is in the 19th century it became common practice for Europe's great powers to draw up detailed war plans in order to get cauting, getting caught under uh, underprepared these plans focused on logistics especially the use of railroads to deploy army armies uh, Germany's Schlieffen plan for instance is a classic example of if for some reason one of these treaties are triggered then the Germans would immediately hammer through Belgium into France and move on Paris and uh, beat the beat the crap out of them. And once mobilization begins, your enemies were bound to respond in kind, so there was no way to stop the cycle of escalation without leaving yourself vulnerable. There was no flexibility because of the age and the, the prehistoric nature of human movement and communication. And so once you set in motion the Schlieffen plan, and this is what happened, once Germany felt so threatened at one point, <coughs> they initiated the Schlieffen plan, moved, and it really they shouldn't have, but they didn't know any better, so they, they moved into Belgium, and that's what triggered all of these different alliances. Um, so everybody became a department of offense, and... Part of the part of the problem is that if if you one of the the post World War II ideals is that no military should be uh, prepared for offense. Everybody should be prepared for defense. And if you come into our house and punch us in the face, we get to punch you back. But we're not going to come into your house and punch you. And the the intelligent reason is that that's much cheaper <laughs> in in the long run. Uh, it is. You know, the, the these battleships, for for instance. So, uh, l- let me let me say this. It, it, look at look at Switzerland, for instance. Switzerland prepared for their defense. There is a Swiss army. My uncle was in the Swiss army, but they were all defensive and they posed no real threat. Um, so. Switzerland, the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway all managed to defend themselves and prevent war from infiltrating their borders in spite of their vastly outpopulated, surrounded, and outspent uh, neighbors. Um, The cost of derailing invading trains is much more expensive than building the trains and rails themselves. One roadside bomb, for instance, is hundreds of times cheaper than the 20 trained soldiers and the military truck to carry them. A bunker with four soldiers cannot be overcome with fewer than 100 soldiers. Even bombs and missiles are more expensive than thick, the thick metal and concrete roofing that protects them. An anti-aircraft gun simply catapulted literally literal scraps and junks into the air could destroy expensive aircraft and their crew. Uh, Switzerland protects their country. Uh, they spent $10 million on their mil- military and contemporary dollars during the entire war. 1913 alone... France spent three hundred and twenty-one million, and Germany spent five hundred and seventy-three million, uh, and that's one of the reasons that uh, Switzerland made it through the war is because they just—if you entered their country, they could defeat you because they had spent while they had spent way less on the order of magnitude, it was much more effective, and they—they they didn't have a hostile stance; they weren't participating. Switzerland went galt in both of the wars, um, so. Number 14, the final point uh, of this, is there is 
uh, he, Eric Sass writes, there, this one's a little out there, but we're thinking about. After World War II, Sigmund Freud theorized the existence of a death drive, pushing humans to annihilate themselves and others. It exists alongside other drives that may hold it in check, like the desire for pleasure. But the death drive is always there in subconscious, guiding our actions at least some of the time. Destruction is also linked to creation. And so many welcomed the war. The young people, and this is true, young people in Europe welcomed the war because it was the dawn of a new era. They were going to sweep away Europe's old, stale, and stagnant civilization. They were going to build a new and better world. Uh, So... You know, this there was a fervor and excitement for the war to begin. Everybody was looking for the war. The populations were looking for the war. But in reality, many of the, the leaders of these countries were not looking for war. They did not want the war to begin. Uh, so, you know, there was no actual person to blame. Like, you can blame uh, Hitler for World War II. So that's why he's the most evil man in, in history, even though Stalin and Mao killed more people. It's because you could, he, he started the war that killed hundreds of millions of people. Uh, actually, I think it was like 70 million, 50 to 70 million. Uh, the greatest irony of World War II, Sass writes, is that none of the key decision makers wanted it to happen, and death wish or no, neither did most ordinary people. Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II prided himself on reputation as a peacekeeper and frantically tried to avert World War II at the last minute. Previously, Austria-Hungary's Emperor Franz Joseph went to extraordinary lengths to keep the peace, and Russia's Tsar Nicholas II was known for his peaceful nature. Although this obviously wasn't enough to stop the war on its own, it shows the will for peace was there if only the circumstances would allow. So how does a society that wants peace, where many ordinary people want peace, the, the leaders of these countries want peace, how does a war break out? And it's just a confluence of, of events. It's public fervor. It, it is. It's, it, there is a time when things are just uncontrollable. And that's why you have to really examine what you're putting out there in the world because it, 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 are you contributing to a situation where fervor can take hold and then all of a sudden war breaks out? So, so these are, these are the, uh, the reasons, the main contributors to why World War One happened and how many of them are uh, contemporaneously happening today. Now, I'm not saying World War Three will break out, but we have to learn from history and see those cycles and apply it to modern day. Uh, so up next, I'm going to talk about uh, during the war and what happened on the home front in America. So now let's move on to the homeland, and let's move to the Americans, and um, how, how things are relevant to us today, not just in foreign policy, but also in homeland. Uh, so you have to understand, Woodrow Wilson was kind of a nut job. Uh, he was born in Atlanta, Georgia. He was raised in pre-Civil War South. He was very racist. The first movie shown in the White House was under Wilson. It was Birth of a Nation. And uh, he he resegregated the army. So during Reconstruction, you had the, the first African American senators and House reps in the South elected, and uh, then things clamped down, and things got a little things got much worse. And uh, Woodrow Wilson was very much um, he was he was more in some ways more European than he was American. He was an enormous Francophile. Uh, to the point that the English were actually horrified by <laughs> the ambassador to America 
just being like, oh my God, this guy's such a poser. And Woodrow Wilson had these grand designs that America ought to be uh, as as big of a European power as uh, the British, the French, the Germans. And what you have to understand is that America... America was still very young, I mean, 100 years old, and not really a player on the world stage because, you know, in the founding, you had uh, very little desire uh, to get involved in European affairs. The Washington, I think it's the Washington Doctrine, but George Washington basically said, you know, let's not get into, into entangling alliances, let's not get involved in European affairs, this, this does not involve us. And that was the modus operandi for much of the republic, you know, with the exception of a few things like the Barbary pirates. <laughs> and uh, excuse me, Woo, I just ate dinner. I took a pause there, um, and now I'm fighting the cat. Uh, d- despite the wars, trying to clear up shipping lanes, and uh, th- but then the government was fairly small. The military was fairly small, and what you see over time. This is outlined in a book called The Crisis and uh, Leviathan by Robert Higgs. Yes, Crisis and Leviathan, uh, which you'll find in the show notes. That every time a war comes along, the American, it's sort of like a ratchet. And it ratchets, it, it ratchets up the amount of central control that the federal government has. Uh, so, for instance, the War of 1812, when the there's a war between the British and the Americans, uh, there's a... That's when the standing army basically gets created and a navy is formed. And then you have reformers. Um, as much as we not might not like to think of uh, Andrew Jackson in any positive light usually, uh, he did end the central bank and, and pay down a lot of the debt. And so by 1840s, the 1840s, there was really no debt. Uh, there was very little militarism. Uh, it was a very free society. There were very few taxes, some tariffs. And then the Civil War comes along, and then this is another ratchet up of the central government's power. Um, You see Lincoln just become, uh, you know, as much as Lincoln is revered, you have to sit there and go, okay, the, the Constitution was designed with a separation in mind that if people people could dissolve their participation in the union if they wanted and so Lincoln is revered for saving the union and and I always kind of sit there and go why uh, if those states wanted to leave then what is the isn't it a little propagandistic to honor someone for saving the United States government uh, when in reality the U.S. government would have gone on just without half the states, um, although it would have been much harder. But it would have eventually come back around. But Lincoln essentially invaded the South. He was every bit as tyrannical as Woodrow Wilson. Uh, he jailed journalists who wrote against the war. He had soldiers arresting American citizens. Uh, so uh, suspending habeas corpus, he was he was a, a big um, proponent of expanding the federal powers to save the union. And th- once you kind of ratchet stuff up, things can kind of go back a little bit, but they never really are quite the same. And so once once the federal government grabbed these powers, then they never really let them go. And the Amer- but the Americans still, you know, despite the Civil War, were not interested in world affairs. And then you see in the progressive movement, in the progressive era, the thought that the American government ought to start uh, participating on the world stage. And Woodrow Wilson was kind of the the main proponent of this and the the implementer of this. Where 
the Americans ought to be every bit uh, a part of the world. Uh, we we should sit at the table, and you know he he was itching to get into the war from the very beginning, and, and so every Woodrow Wilson lied to the American people, and so here's why he wanted to get into the war and he wanted to make us a big part of the world stage and again i mentioned he was an an anglophile which means he loved england and in england they had something called the blooding and it is the idea that when you go out and fox hunt and you've killed your first fox they take a some blood of the fox and they put it on your cheek and he considered it uh, that you couldn't really sit down and hammer out world agreements and be a part of the world stage without having some blood on your cheek. And he even in the speech announcing that he was declaring war and, and trying to get the Congress to declare war, which they ultimately did against Germany, you know, he he talks about what a great privilege or it is for Americans to spill blood in defense of democracy and making the world safe for democracy. And so he really had this notion that the United States, and it's probably not an, an accurate notion, that the United States couldn't sit there and uh, help with um, negotiating peace as a real player on the world stage if they didn't have some skin in the game. Uh, but the idea that you should have skin in the game is where it's the fruit of the poisonous tree. He didn't need to have skin in the game at all. Um, so... He he is constantly looking for a way. Now, a big part of this is the fact that America, uh, especially the House of Morgan, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, what is now Chase Bank, uh, had loaned billions of dollars to England. And the the reality is that American banks in um, all of the Anglican banks had loaned to France and England. A lot of the Jewish banks had actually loaned to Germany, which was part of what the Balfour Declaration was uh, designed to do in, ni- in uh, 1917 was to declare that uh, the British government would support a national home for the Jewish people. It was a way to um, try and get Jewish bankers to loan money to the British and French governments and stop loaning money to the uh, Germans. <clears throat> and so... There was a, you know, Eugene Debs actually went to prison when he gave a speech in Ohio saying that uh, this was not a war for democracy. This is a war to protect the interest of bankers. And uh, he was jailed. He was put in jail. Eugene Debs was the head, the head of the Socialist Party here in the United States. Think of it in terms of Nick Sarwark says that uh, that uh, Barack Obama is where Donald Trump is just uh, perpetuating a war for central bankers, and then Nick Sarwark goes to jail for saying that. Uh, so you have Debs put in prison, and, and Wilson imprisons him. He, in 1920, he's dying, and uh, he, a, lot of, a lot of people flood the White House saying, hey, let him, let him out, let him out. He said, I won't let him out. I mean, he was a very heartless person. Uh, and so... There is some truth to the fact that this was about protecting the interest of the bank because if Germany had had won the war, then Britain wouldn't have been able to pay those loans back and the New York banking institutions would have been absolutely ruined. And so many of the House of Morgan uh, agents, the people who you know, move between the central banks and the government, 
were very, uh, including one of Wilson's top advisors, um, I want to say Hunt, but I don't think that's correct. So I'm I shouldn't have said that. But uh, his basically his chief of staff was uh, tied to the House of Morgan uh, to the Morgan banking system, and so this is this is especially Murray Rothbard did a great talk, which is in the show notes about how Woodrow Wilson pushed the American people into the war to protect American banking institutions because there was a lot of upside for Americans. So part of what the great collapse in 1928 was about is that all of these countries were buying war bonds. Not only did we did we sell the money that they would fund the war with in Europe, in France, Russia, and uh, England, but then when Germany loses the war, we're the ones who are basically helping fund their recovery. And so capital is flooding the the banking system, and there are massive drives for war bonds in the lead up to the war. Uh, Charlie Chaplin would go out with many other celebrities and sell war bonds. There was actually a period where they were keeping tabs on people in certain towns who and who was not buying war bonds. And if Germans didn't buy enough war bonds, then they would be beaten. Uh, there, there was because what you have to understand this is this is a very I'm in Indianapolis. This is a very German town, uh, Cincinnati, uh, St. Louis. These are very German towns. There was a large population of German immigrants who were here. My family was all part of that my, at the time down in uh, Freelandville, Indiana, where my dad's family is from, where I will visit on Saturday for Thanksgiving. The town didn't even speak English; they just spoke German. Uh, you know, in the, my great great grandfather was born just a, a couple of years before the war, and uh, he was raised speaking German. So you had these towns that just didn't speak English. So it it, it was not a country that uh, was very Anglo centric. And so when the war actually broke out, um, you know, reading a lot about H. L. Mencken who was a German descendant. He, he was very pro-Germany, even though he was like a fourth-generation German-American. Uh, but he was uh, he, he got letters. He, the Kaiser had written him a couple letters and thanking him for support. So he was a very influential commentator in the, in the uh, 1900s, 1920s, 1930s, and uh, one of the first people to really coin the term libertarian. And he had very pro-German sympathies, and it was it was not uh, here in America. It was very split. You had more of the elites who were behind England and France because they had financial interests, but many of the American people had pro-German sympathies because of their heritage. And so, in an effort to get the Americans to mobilize against Germany. They had to uh, – the Wilson administration just mobilized a large-scale propaganda effort. Now, the term propaganda um, – I, I heard someone say that it was originated in this time. It was not. The term propaganda goes back to the uh, early days of the Reformation, and the Catholic Church started an office with the term propaganda in, a, in an effort to put out um, – uh, basically, to say these these Luther Lutherans are all fake news. <laughs> so propaganda, as a term and as a concept of public relations, really has its um, its originations in the Reformation, and it really makes sense because before the Reformation in Western society, 
you had very top-down command societies. Whatever the top said is what you believed. And if you didn't believe that or at least give uh, allegiance to it, then you would be put in jail or you'd be beaten. And so once every, every country starts to liberalize in the West in the 19th century and 20th century, the demand for PR in a democracy becomes much greater. And so managing public opinion becomes much more of uh, an industry in this time period because you you no longer can command that people just believe a certain way. If you need, as a government, the people to do something or to believe something, you can't just put a gun to their head. You have to persuade them uh, through the use of propaganda. And so what you have the Wilson administration doing is creating offices for propaganda and they are putting out all these posters. This is where the famous Uncle Sam pointing poster comes from. Yeah, the, and very aggressive anti-German messaging in newspapers, in uh, posters, in messaging up, into, uh, up until and through the war. Um, and so you have all these Germans in this country who are sitting here going, wow, I'm with the Germans. I, I, I you know, I grew up in Germany, it just doesn't make sense that German soldiers would be tossing babies from bayonet to bayonet, but, you know, it's here in the newspaper. So, uh, and you actually have a lot of anti-German sentiment. German newspapers closed down. Um, they, uh, you have J. Edgar Hoover, who works for an agency who is uh, trying to decide if there are espionage agents, you're no longer uh, legally allowed to speak German on the phones, uh, on the phone lines. You can only speak English. So the German anti-German sentiment really uh, spins out of control at this time, and that's when a lot of people of my heritage change their name from Spangler to Spangle, for instance. I don't know if my name was particularly changed, but if you 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 may have. Um, uh, a history. You may ask some older relatives over the over the Thanksgiving. Do you know the origins of our name? I wouldn't be surprised if there are some people in this audience who had their name changed during this time period from a more Germanic name to a more Anglo anglicized name um, to resist persecution because it was a very anti-German sentiment, and that was all from the top down. So you really had the American people were undivided. Maybe they had their separated sympathies, but people were not necessarily taking sides, nor did they really care what was happening overseas. And then all of a sudden Woodrow Wilson comes along and propagandizes them and provokes them into taking a side, and that's when violence takes place. And so Wilson uses this uh, to the, the income tax is implemented, the Federal Reserve is implemented, he starts to grow the military again. He starts to uh, he takes command of of several different agencies. Uh, we'll read an article here in just one moment. Um, but this is a very this is a very um, sad time in American history because this is a major ratcheting. This is a complete breaking of the American sentiment of government, and uh, the war is used to condition people to uh, encourage the growth of the central government. And then obviously fast-forwarding to World War II, you have World War II and FDR and many of the people who were younger working in and around uh, Wilson who went on to be part of the New Deal uh, team for Woodrow Wilson. 
those people are implemented at that time. Obviously, LBJ in Vietnam and the growth of the Great Society. Uh, and then, um, obviously, the Iraq War, too, and Afghanistan when you see the grow of the surveillance state. So the the use of the military and foreign intervention is always a time when the American ideal breaks down. What makes America great and exceptional in the world um, separation of entangling alliances, limited central government, localism, uh, uh, free markets, it all starts to break down during times of war. And so uh, you have to be very careful when we're in a time of war uh, as to what you're supporting because you may be supporting something that is untrue. Um, so, you know, he ran on peace. Uh, when he was uh, first elected in 1912, and he ran against four people. He ran against Debs, the socialist. He ran against um, uh, the- Teddy Roosevelt, who was a Republican progressive, and he ran against. Uh, gosh, uh, I am. Uh, let me see. let me just see. 1912 election. Um, I'm completely blowing it. Uh, William Howard Taft. Uh, William Howard Taft was. Uh, the father of Robert Taft, someone that Ron Paul mentions all the time. Uh, William Howard Taft was a staunch conservative in the style of Coolidge and Harding uh, that would come later. Uh, and he was a very he was very much representing the limited, limited government side. And so the Republicans of, in Roosevelt and Taft uh, split the vote. The progressives in and the socialists and Debs weren't that powerful at that point. And so Wilson ends up beating out the Republican incumbent, William Howard Taft. And uh, so – and he runs on not getting us into war. He, he wins re-election in 1916, and his slogan was, he kept us out of war. Now, meantime, the entire time – and Roosevelt did this later with, uh, the, with Churchill and, and the British – uh, he was doing things that were funding the British side of the war. He was he was inching us closer. He was installing various pieces of legislation that would allow us to get into the war. Um, many different activists tried to keep us out of the war. A group of activists calling themselves the Emergency Peace Federation visited the White House on February 28, 1917 to plead with their longtime ally, Wilson. Think of his predecessors, George Washington and John Adams, they told him. Surely Wilson could find a way to protect American shipping without joining Europe's war. What the peace delegation didn't fully realize was that Wilson, caught in a series of events, was turning from a peace proponent to a wartime president. That agonizing shift, which took over 70 days in 1917, would transform the U.S. from an isolated neutral nation to a world power. Now, this is from the Smithsonian, so it's essentially official history from the United States government. Um, and And he justified two reasons for breaking his promise that he would never get us into war. And they were fairly manufactured crisis. The first was the Zimmerman telegram. And this was a telegram from uh, uh, an intelligence officer in the German army to uh, the the Mexicans in Japan who had no interest in fighting the United States, in fact, saying, hey, if you join the war, if you fight the Americans, then we will give you pieces of America when we win the war. And uh, the Zimmerman telegram is largely said that this is one of the main reasons, but it was – it was – how do I relate this to the the uh, the other was the Lusitania and the sinking of the Lusitania, 
And so what you had was uh, Woodrow Wilson putting what Williams Jennings Bryant said was you know using a strategy of babies and bullets on these ships. And so the Germans um, were how, – how to not complicate this? Uh, <laughs> so when the war began, the the British put a blockade of supplies on the Germans. And it ended up killing 750,000 Germans. Uh, 750,000 Germans died of starvation because of the British blockade. It's one of the most evil things that has ever been done. It it is uh, truly a disgusting and disgraceful act of war. Uh, And it was not... um, I think the Nazis did it in certain places, in Stalingrad, for instance. But by and large, it was not done in the same way. Uh, Nor was chemical warfare used in the same way in the Second World War that it was used in the First the Germans introduced chemical warfare. There are, there are parts of Verdun and the Somme where trees do not grow still 100 years later. Uh, they're, very, they're very odd and broken, and it's because there's so many th- tens of thousands of chemical weapon shells that rain down on, on the battlefields. And so <clears throat> the, uh, the b- blockade of food, the, the only... Uh, countermeasure that the Germans really had because in the beginning of the years of the war until the spring offensive in 1918, the Germans had um, one weapon to really kind of fight back because there was trench warfare and it was a stalemate on land. And so they they used unlimited submarine warfare to really fight back. And so as American ships, they they just declared it to everybody that, uh, listen, we're going to shoot any ship. It doesn't matter what flag it is. It doesn't matter if it's the Americans. And so what Woodrow Wilson would allow and encourage was the mingling of ammunition shipments to Britain and France along with regular passengers. So imagine you're putting uh, families heading to see family in Iraq along with ammunition and flying it over uh, war uh, military airspace. <laughs> so uh, think of how dis- despicable that is. And so Wilson was manufacturing crises. And so you have a U-boat surface, and they see, as they described it, a wall. And it's the most famous ship in, in the world, and it's the Lusitania. It's an American ship. It's enormous. And it's a passenger vessel, and it also ha- is full of ammunition. And so they shoot it. And eventually, uh, something disrupts and the ammunition explodes and it sinks and about 150 people die. And uh, William Jennings Bryant, who was the Secretary of State at the time, realizes what Wilson is doing and resigns about a month afterwards saying, I refuse to participate in this strategy. And, uh, you know, the the... The sinking of the Lusitanian and American ships. Here's what you have to remember. Who is on a boat going to England in 1917, 1916? It is elite. It is, think of the movie Titanic. It is Anglican people who are going to see friends and family in England. The people who are in in Freelandville, Indiana, they are Germans who don't care about those people. Regular Americans didn't care about the elite. 
they they didn't really pay attention to the news. Um, many people just existed in the way that you and I exist. I mean, we're hyper into it, right? Uh, so we follow every little move, but most Americans just don't kind of follow the news. So the Zimmerman telegram and the Lusitania and its sinking are way overblown in terms of the reasons of how Wilson – that was the, the way that Wilson manipulated the American political structure into the war. But for regular Americans, they were largely against it. There were actually more – so this – World War I in, implemented the first national draft for a foreign war. There was conscri- conscription in the Civil War on both sides, but this was the first war where it was a foreign war and uh, we were uh, a nation, one nation. And there were actually more dissenters. There were more people who refused to sign up for the draft than in Vietnam. Uh, because people refused to go and fight their family. I mean, it was literally, it was people who were going to fight. It was German on German, uh, Japanese on Japanese. It was, it was French on French. I mean, it, so um, at the end of the war, Eddie Rickenbacker, who was a famous pilot, who uh, very near and dear to my heart, he was a race car driver, saved the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and he was the n- number one World War ace. And he actually, in his autobiography, I heard this anecdote on the Tom Woods uh, podcast with uh, uh, Hunt Tooley. He he talked about Rickenbacker flying over the end of the war, and after the armistice at eleven eleven on eleven eleven eight eighteen, uh, he could see people just getting out and you know walking over and shaking hands, and uh, you know I mean these these are people who um, I th- I think most soldiers. You hear the notion of fighting for country, and I think a lot of that is propaganda. I think most soldiers are fighting for each other, and they really just resent being there. <laughs> and and there were actually, um, in this war, there were many different mutinies from soldiers. There were soldiers on, on both the French and the Russian side uh, who just flat out refused to go over the wall again. They just were not going to run over the wall and get, get gunned down. And, um, you know, because these guys would just they would just put people over the top uh, to just have action to do something. You know, one British general was called the butcher because he was just needlessly sending people over. I mean, the the craziest story is how many people died on the final day of Armistice Day. Let me look up the actual fact and figure here. Yeah. So I'm looking here at History Net and uh, on. Armistice Day in 1918, the American Expeditionary Forces on the Western Front in France suffered more than 3,500 casualties, although it had been known unofficially for two days that the fighting would end that day and known with absolute certainty as of 5 o'clock in the morning that it would end at 11 a.m. So General John Pershing would actually testify on the efficiency of the war's prosecution of the House. Uh, Forget that part. Um, so you had 10,000, looks like here, uh, indeed Armistice Day exceeded the 10,000 casualties suffered by all sides on D-Day with this difference. The men storming the Normandy beaches on June 6, 1944 were risking their lives to win a war. The men who fell on November 11, 1918 lost their lives in a war that the Allies had already won. So there was just absolute recklessness with human life. In World War One, and it was uh, it was something that was not not done again in war. Uh, even as brutal as the Nazis were, 
having been a frontline soldier, Hitler really instituted policies on the German side that didn't do to uh, to his soldiers what had been done to him. Many of the uh, people who were in the upper echelons of the government um, on the Britain, British, France, uh, French, and Russian side had been in World War One and had those memories. Same in the American side. And so the conduct of the of World War II was just much different um, than it was in 1918. There were so many facial wounds, actually, that plastic surgery was really – it became a thing. Uh, you may remember in um, Boardwalk Empire, the soldier who had the fake uh, face because he had such a bad facial injury. Uh, that was one noted uh, piece of this war was uh, all of the different um, – Facial injuries. Uh, so let me kind of let me see here. What else do I want to tell you? I got so I'm so excited about this topic um, because I just think there's so I, I may I don't know that I'll I'll do another episode on it, um, but I think that just studying it, I'm going to keep studying it because I just think there's so much here that kind of gives us the the um, the layers of the, the the beginning of everything. Let me go to this Mises article. Um, this is very long, uh, so I'm not going to read all of it. I want, I wish I could uh, because it's so good. It's um, Ralph Ryko, uh, World War One on the home front. Uh, so many good good articles in the show notes. So go and check that out. Um, so. Let me read this, and I'll read it until I feel it's getting boring, or I'll just kind of skip through certain parts, because I don't want to just read this to you, but uh, a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, It's from Mises.org, so you know. Um, The changes wrought in America during the First World War were so profound that one scholar has referred to the Wilsonian Revolution in government. Like other revolutions, it was preceded by an intellectual transformation as the philosophy of progressivism came to dominate political discourse. Progressive notions of the obsolescence of laissez-faire and the constitutionality of limited government, the urgent need to organize society scientifically, and the superiority of the collective over the individual were propagated by the most influential sector of the intelligentsia and began to make inroads in the nation's public life. So this was, as Rothbard said, this is the one time that the intellectuals got to really manage a war in society, and they did so poorly with it that they didn't get to do it again. Um, as we'll see with the drawing of of maps after the war. As the war furnished Lenin with otherwise unavailable opportunities for realizing his program, and it should be noted that uh, in Russia the war was so unpopular, as it was in most places, because the reality is that the war was very disconnected from the, the beginning of the war and the conduct of the war was so disconnected from populations that when the war ended, people were horrified by how much their governments had lied to them. Uh, I mean, there's nothing even akin to modern day uh, in terms of how bad it was. Uh, Wilson was just vilified uh, after after his presidency was over, after uh, all the the Espionage Act laws were lifted. I mean, people were writing just these screeds against Wilson, what a liar he was uh, in his own time. Uh, in Russia, I mean, in Germany, a big reason that uh, Germany was so unstable after the war is that you had Erich Ludendorff, and uh, Erich Ludendorff was essentially a military dictator for the last couple of years of the war. 
He was uh, in the early days a brilliant tactician in the war, and and um, ha- and then he and then he just sort of lost it, and then he kind of went crazy, and he kept trying to shuffle power back between the military and under his authority, and then the central government that he tried to form because he at one point said we need to form a, a civil government. And that way we can go to Woodrow Wilson, who's going to give us more favorable terms, because we know we're going to lose this. So let's go to Wilson, who will give us favorable terms. And he wants a, a liberal democracy. So he formed a civil government. And then when he realized Wilson was going to give them the same terms that the British were going to give, he tried to take the power back. And he, <laughs> he tried to say, they're trying to screw us, the the elites, the Jews, the the uh, all of the the bankers all of the civil servants they're all trying to st- and that so the, that's a lot of where hitler's view of how the war turned out came from eric ludendorff trying to grab power back for himself because he realized that the germans he was he was going to lose power personally uh, there's a great netflix documentary called armistice so if you're more interested in that it really lays it out in a brilliant way uh the propaganda that eric ludendorff put out into the the populace to try and take blame off of himself for losing the war. Uh, Ludendorff went on to actually be the first Nazi presidential candidate. Um, Hindenburg obviously was kind of there, the Nazi chancellor, uh, and before uh, he died, and then uh, and then Hitler rose through the ranks to become a dictator. But uh, the, the 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 German people were just absolutely flabbergasted at how they had been told that they were winning the war all the way up until they were losing the war. And then all of a sudden they're like, why are we settling for peace? And it's, it's because they thought they were winning the war. Uh, in Russia, the very, very small minority party, the Bolsheviks, took power because they were literally the only political party that was anti-war and uh, were able to seize the reins of power as, as the angry masses, which had already been destabilized for several uh, generations uh, as people moved up out of poverty uh, it, it it toppled the Russian monarchy there and you know the story of the rise of the Bolshevik rev- revolution uh, and so at the end of the Bolshevik revolution of 1917 was so significant that it ended up uh, scaring every other power because what happened is when Lenin took over, you had all these governments borrow money, and they had borrowed money, and they had inflated their currency. Uh, The British citizenry only paid 30% of the actual uh, war debt through taxes. Most of it was just inflating through their currency because you couldn't tax – when most of your your women were not in the workforce at that point, Uh, although because they took over so many duties – during World War One, that when the men came home, they said, I think we deserve the right to vote. I think we deserve the right to be in society. And so that was a big reason that uh, women's, um, the first feminist wave was came about is because women were so key on the home front that when men came back, they were like, eh, you know, we carried it, see? So give us, give us our rights too. And that's when you get uh, female suffrage. And so... But your your tax base essentially is off fighting and not producing. So once you've taken the, them out, and this is a great argument of why taxation is theft, you take the productive members of society, 
you pull them out of out of production, you put them on the government roll on the government dole via payment for for the military, and then lo and behold, you don't have a tax base anymore. So, and so uh, they had to go to central banks and inflate the currency. And you, this is the first period of real inflation. And uh, they basically pay for the war by inflating the money. I mean, 80% inflation of the currency is what got France out. They were the lucky ones. And then you also see the Weimar Republic, and you remember the stories of the wheelbarrows. Uh, Italy had massive inflation. All these countries had massive inflation of their currency to try and pay off the debt. Because if your dollar is worth less, then when you pay off the debt, you're not paying off as much. Well, Lenin immediately gets into office and says, we're getting out of the war. He pulls them out of the war. Then the debt comes due and he says, we're not paying the debt. And he cancels all the debt. And so these guys are just going, wow, this is just a crazy government. We're not going to deal with these people. They don't want to be part of our club. And they're not going to pay us what they owe us. And so they were desperate not to let Marxists take over in any other place. And so at the end of the war, they, the, uh, the Entente powers, the winning powers, essentially install in Germany the socialists uh, to, to democratize the, the country uh, because they don't want Bolsheviks or, uh, or any leftists really coming to power because some of the socialists weren't actually – um, leftist, believe it or not, and I know it's very confusing. It's like if you go back and you study these terms and who calls people what, like liberals are conservatives and conservatives are Stalinist. It's very uh, confusing. So, um, but the uh, as Reiko writes, as the war furnished Lenin with otherwise unavailable opportunities for realizing his program. So, too, on a more modest level, it opened up prospects for American progressives that could have never existed in peacetime. The coterie of intellectuals around the New Republic discovered a heaven-sent chance to advance their agenda. John Dewey praised the immense impetus to reorganization afforded by this war. Walter Lippmann wrote, we, dare not, we can dare to hope for things which we never dared to hope for in the past. The magazine itself rejoiced in the war's possibility for broadening, quote, social control, subordinating the individual to the group and to the group to society, and advocated that the war be used, quote, as a pretext to foist innovation upon the country. Wilson's readiness to cast off traditional restraints on government power greatly facilitated the foisting of such innovations. The result was a shrinking of American freedoms unrivaled since at, at least the war between the states— uh, which is also known as the Civil War, but over at the Mises Institute, apparently it's the war between the states. Uh, it is customary to distinguish economic from civil liberties, but since all rights are rooted in the right to property, starting with the basic right to self-ownership, this distinction is, in the last analysis, an artificial one. It is maintained here for the purposes of exposition. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, as Higgs writes in Crisis on Leviathan, uh, even before we entered the war, Congress passed the National Defense Act. It gave the president the authority in the time of war or, quote, or war when war is imminent to place orders with private firms, which would, quote, take precedence over all other orders and contracts. So if the government came a calling, you had to give them priority. Again, I told you 
that uh, if you've watched, I watched the Atlas Shrugged movies and um, I bought the audiobook. I'm like five minutes into it, <laughs> which means I only have 787,000 minutes left. Uh, but the, the, uh, the, environment in which Dagny Taggart lives resembles very much what was going on during World War One uh, and World War II. Uh, so it has happened here. Um, uh, let's see. If the manufacturer refused to fill the order at a, quote, reasonable price as determined by the Secretary of War, the government was authorized to take immediate possession of any such plant and to manufacture therein such product or material as may be required. The private owner, meanwhile, would be quote, deemed guilty of a felony. Once the war was declared, the power grew at a dizzying pace. The Lever Act alone put Washington in charge of the production and distribution of all food and fuel in the United States. Um, this is from, this is actually written in Crisis and Leviathan. By the time of the armistice, the government had taken over the, the ocean shipping, railroad, telephone, and telegraph industries commandeered hundreds of manufacturing plants, entered into massive enterprises on its own account in such varied departments as shipbuilding, wheat trading, and building construction, undertaken to, undertaken to lend huge sums to business directly or indirectly, and to regulate the private issuance of securities, established official priorities for the use of transportation facilities, food, fuel, and many raw materials, fixed the prices of dozens of important commodities, intervened in hundreds of labor disputes and conscripted millions of men for service in the armed forces. Now, you have to understand this is a total revolution in government because what what happens before this is the government is very weak and anemic. Uh, you know, even state governments are weak and anemic at this time. I mean, and if you're living in America in the 1840s, for instance, as long as you're not black, you have a relative uh, freedom. I mean, uh, as your freedom may be limited by your class um, or by your economic situation, but you don't have a local, you may have a local sheriff, but like think of the Old West, for instance. Um, you may have a local magistrate, but you don't have like an overwhelming central government putting a gun to your head saying, you're going to give me your business and produce for the government or else. That just didn't exist until Woodrow Wilson. Uh, fatuitously, that's a, what a great word. I don't know what that means at all. Uh, <laughs> fatuitously. Let's look, let's look this up together. I have a good vocabulary, but I don't know fatuitously. Fatuitous. Silly and pointless. I'm going to use that from now on. <clears throat> uh, fatuitously, so sillily, <laughs> Wilson conceded that the powers granted him, quote, are very great indeed, but they are no greater than it has proved necessary to lodge and other governments which are conducting this momentous war. So according to the president, the United States was simply following the idea and the lead of the old world nations in leaping into war socialism. Throngs of novice bureaucrats either, either uh, eager to staff new agencies overran Washington. Many of them came from progressive intelligentsia. Quote, never, have, never before had so many intellectuals and academics swarmed into the government to help plan, regulate, and mobilize the economic system. Amongst them, Rexford Tugwell would later be a key figure in the New Deal Brain Trust. Others who volunteered from the business sector harbored views no different from the statism of the professors. Um, Bernard Baruch, Hussein Obama, 
Okay, that's not his real name. His name is Bernard Baruch. He's the um, he's the Atlas Shrugged economic development guy. Wall Street financier and now head of the War Industries Board held that the free market was characterized by anarchy, confusion, and wild fluctuations. Baruch stressed the crucial distinction between consumer wants and consumer needs, making it clear who has authorized to decide um, which was which. When price controls in agriculture produced their inevitable distortions, price controls and rent control are introduced for the first time in American history at this time. Price controls meaning the government is setting the price. Um, So when price controls in agriculture produced their inevitable distortions, Herbert Hoover, a formerly successful engineer and now food administrator of the U.S., urged Wilson to institute overall price controls. The only acceptable remedy uh, general price, uh, 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 is a general price-fixing power in yourself or in the FTC. Wilson submitted the appropriate legislation to Congress, which was rejected. So these guys actually introduced legislation to the House asking to have the ability to control the price of literally every good sold in the United States of America. That's who these guys were. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing uh, the the arrogance that you must have to think that you, you, Woodrow Wilson and Herbert Hoover can control every single price in all of the goods sold in the United States. So when your interventions in the food supply go haywire and you, you raise the price of goods, uh, well, you know, we need to lower the price of other goods to even this out. And it never ends. It's a never it's – a, oh, it's an increasing – encroachment on the economy and we've seen that i mean name one thing within your view right now that isn't controlled by so that isn't taxed controlled by some government agency that doesn't have some layer of government touching it ratification of the income tax amendment in 1913 paved the way for massive and massive increase on the taxation once again once the americans entered the war so once, so there, it was promised that. W- now, here's the thing: these guys, um, you think about it. So, the prohibition. Yeah, we need to limit the sale of alcohol. We we should get a constitutional amendment for it. We need to put an income tax in place. We should get a constitutional amendment for it. So, uh, the, it, now it's just like, eh, just write an executive order. <laughs> Uh, so at least they did respect the Constitution in some ways. But when they put the uh, t- t- income tax in, Wilson promises it's never, ever, 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 ever going to increase. It's never going to go over 13%. Never. And then when they enter the war, uh, the lowest tax bracket tripled from 2 to 6%. The highest went from 13 to 77%. Uh, in 1916, less than half a million tax returns had been filed. So half a million tax returns filed in 1916. 1917, the number was three and a half million, a figure which doubled by 1920. So only half a million people had to file tax returns in 1916. Uh, that doubled by 1920. Uh, this, was incre- this was in addition to increases in other federal taxes. Um, federal tax receipts, quote, would never be less than a sum five times greater than pre-war levels again. 
Um, so even huge tax increases were not nearly enough to cover the cost of war. Through the f- recently established Federal Reserve System, the government created new money to finance its studying deficits, which by 1918 reached $1 billion a month, more than the total annual federal budget before the war. Mm, that sounds familiar, only with a T. The number of civilian federal employees more than doubled from 1916 to 1918 to 450,000. After the war, two-thirds of the new jobs were eliminated, leaving a permanent net gain of 141,000 employees, a 30% ratchet effect. So think of how small the government was before the war, and then after the war, 141,000 permanent swamp monsters. Um, so so then he goes on to talk about how you, you might think that... Uh, Big business, heroic biz, big business leaders would step up and say, this Leviathan must end. And uh, you're going to be disappointed, he says, because businessmen welcomed government intrusions, which brought guaranteed profits. A quote, risk, riskless capitalism. Who doesn't love riskless capitalism? Like, too big to fail. Uh, apparently, people like every banking institution since uh, they've formed the Fed. And a cartel. Um, so uh, they they also liked that the fact that the government would bust up unions for them. So the stupid industrial workers of the world, those guys, they didn't have to hire the Pinkertons to crack skulls anymore. They had the force of government to end those labor disputes because they created the labor department. So they, they took care of it. It's all good now. Um, of the First World War, Rothbard wrote that it was the critical watershed for the American business system. A war collectivism was established, which served as the model, the precedent, and the inspiration for state corporate capitalism for the remainder of the century. Many of the administrators and principal functionaries of the new agencies and bureaus reappeared a decade and a half later when another crisis evoked another great surge of government activism. It should also not be forgotten that Roosevelt himself, FDR, was president in Washington as an assistant secretary of the Navy and an eager participant in the Wilson Revolution. Um, Jonathan Hughes sums it up like this. The direct legacy of war, the dead, the debt, the inflation, the change in economic and social structure that comes from immense transfers of resources by taxation and money creation, these things are all obvious. What has not been so obvious has been the pervasive yet subtle change in our increasing acceptance of federal non-market control, even our enthusiasm for it, as a result of the experience of war. So, civil liberties fared no better than economic liberties. Um, Democracy was definitely not safe, despite Woodrow Wilson saying he would make the world safe for democracy. The right of a government legitimized by former majoritarian processes to dispose at will of the lives, liberty, and property of its subjects. Wilson sounded the keynote for the ruthless suppression of anyone who interfered with his war effort. Quote, Woe be to the man or to the group of men that seeks to stand in our way in this day of high resolution, his attorney general. Uh, Wilson said that. This is the sanctimonious type bullcrap that you get from Woodrow Wilson. Woe be to the man or group of men that seeks to stand in our way in this day of high resolution. Uh, His Attorney General Thomas Gregory seconded said, May God have mercy on opponents of the war, for they need to expect none from an outraged people and an avenging government. 
The Espionage Act of 1917, amended the next year by the addition of the Sedition Act, went far beyond punishing spies. Its real target was opinion. It was deployed particularly against socialists and critics of conscription. People were jailed so essentially because so many people opted out that anyone who eroded people's uh, – so if you told people they could disobey, <laughs> that you didn't have to follow what the government said, then they went after you because they needed bodies to throw into this machine. And this is one of the the most gruesome wars for Americans in terms of casualties – uh, we lost a little over 100,000 despite only – I mean the war went on from 1914 to 1918. And realistically, you can you can make an argument that it went on from 1907 to 1923 in, in all the different regions uh, as a world war. Not Now, we focus too much on just the European front. Um, <clears throat> but the Americans were really only in it for nine months to a year. And we lost 100,000 men, and it, and it was uh, huge casualties. And a big reason was that we, we had very under-trained soldiers who had never been in a war. And so, you, like, you know the war movies where, like, you have the old grizzled veterans, and then the new young guy comes along and he's like, I can't wait to get in the war. I'm going to fight. And then he gets killed, like, in the first fight, the first scene. That's, that's a, that is a trope that exists in real life, and that was American soldiers. And uh, they, were, they were used and abused and mowed down uh, recklessly. Um, so, but, so they needed bodies to throw over there because Wilson wanted to send as many people as he possibly could because he wanted to make a statement about how great America was so he could then have leverage over the negotiations after the war ends. Um, now the Espionage Act gets uh, uh, pe- people got arrested for criticizing the Red Cross. A woman was prosecuted and convicted for telling a woman's group that the government is for the profiteers. A movie producer was sentenced to three years in prison for a film called The Spirit of '76, which was deemed anti-British. Eugene Debs, who had polled 900,000 votes in 1912 as a candidate of the Socialist Party, was sentenced to 10 years for criticizing the war to rally of his party. Um, by the way, go read the 1912 and 1908, um, yes, the 1908 platforms of the Socialist Party in Eugene Debs, and you will see Bernie Sanders in it. It's amazing. And really, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Um, citizens of German descent and even Lutheran ministers were harassed and spied on by their neighbors as well as the government agents. Uh, the New York Times then, as now, the mouthpiece of the powers that be, go to the authorities to, quote, make short work of uh, international workers of the world conspirators who oppose the war, just as the same paper applauded Nicholas Murray Butler, president of Columbia, for, quote, doing his duty in dismissing faculty members who oppose conscription. The public schools and universities were turned into conduits for the government line. Postmaster General uh, Albert Burleson censored and prohibited circulation of newspapers critical of Wilson. Um, You read in Mencken, for instance, he was fired as uh, the highly popular columnist in Boston, uh, in Baltimore, I mean, uh, during the war. He he wasn't fired. He was just kind of like, eh, can't do your column anymore. You're a little too pro-German um, because they didn't want the government cracking down on them. But the postmaster, 
uh, in the early days, they just wouldn't like if let let's say Reason Magazine were deemed um, un-American by the Postmaster General of the United States of America, they just would not ship it. So now they have to they have to mail it. Um, but uh, back then they censored things. They they read letters like the post office back in the day. That's why Lysander Spooner was so hard on it because <laughs> they they read your mail. They they wouldn't ship your your subversive catalogs. Um, it was very very. Um, I, I mean, the America of 1917 is not the America that you would recognize even today when it comes to a lot of civil liberties, and a lot of that has to do with the ACLU uh, and a more liberalizing of uh, and a more freeing spirit. But uh, the ACLU was very necessary in the early days, um, which actually was born out of. Out of this, uh, they were they were fighting this. He may get to it in the article, but the the origins of the ACLU uh, and fighting for freedom of speech came from this. Um. So, the nationwide campaign of repression was spurred on by the Committee on Public Information, heated by George Creel, the U.S. government's first propaganda agency. Uh, in cases that reached the Supreme Court, the prosecution of dissenters was upheld. It was the great liberal Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. who wrote the majority decision confirming the conviction of a man who had questioned the constitutionality of the draft, as he did also in 1919 in the case of Debs for his anti-war speech. In the Second World War, the Supreme Court of the U.S. could not, for the life of it, discover anything in the Constitution that might prohibit the rounding up transportation to the interior and incarceration of American citizens simply because they were of Japanese descent. We were at war with the Japanese back then, too, as well. Uh, In the same way, the justices, with Holmes leading the pack, now delivered up the civil liberties of the American people to Wilson and his lieutenants. Uh, And again, precedents were established that would further undermine the people's rights in the future. Um, So... So let me jump ahead a little bit here. <clears throat> Two final episodes, one foreign and one domestic, epitomized the statecraft of Woodrow Wilson. As at the new League of Nations, there was pressure for a U.S. mandate uh, colony in Armenia in the Caucasus. The idea appealed to Wilson. Armenia was exactly the sort of distant dependency which he had prized 20 years earlier as conducive to the, quote, greatly increased power of the president. He sent a secret military mission to scout out the territory, but its, but its report was equivocal, warning that such a mandate would place us in the middle of a centuries-old battleground of imperialism and war and lead to serious complications with the new regime in Russia. The report was not released. Instead, in May 1920, Wilson requested authority from Congress to establish the mandate, but it was turned down. It is interesting to contemplate the likely consequences of our Armenian mandate Comparative, comparable to the joy Britain had from its own mandate in Palestine, only with the constant friction and probable war with the Soviet Russians thrown in. So what he's saying is Armenia, you know, where the Armenian genocide took place, uh, was, was uh, prized by Russia, which is what the Armenian genocide was partly about. Uh, and so we get to hold that only imagine if we held that territory and the USSR wanted it and look at all the headaches, the Balfour declaration of Palestine be belonging to the Jews caused the British. Um, so 
1920, the U.S., Wilson's United States, was the only nation involved in the World War that still refused a general amnesty to political prisoners. That's right. Russia, Germany, France, two years after the war ended, had, had granted amnesty to all their political prisoners. The United States, under Woodrow Wilson, had not. We had political prisoners. In June 1918, Debs had addressed a socialist gathering in Canton, Ohio, where he pilloried the war in the U.S. government. There was no call to violence, nor did any violence ensue, which, you know, you hear the Oliver Wendell Holmes from a, a, a declaration from those cases that are discussed. You know, you, you can't yell, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And I disagree with that. You absolutely can, because if you yell fire in a crowded theater and people die, you are held responsible for it. Okay, so it's not your speech that you should be held uh, responsible for. If you do say anything violent, you shouldn't be held responsible for that legally because of your words. But if violence takes place, then you are held responsible for that. And so you, you can't criminalize words. Words are not criminal actions. Words have never walked up and punched anybody in the face. So even if Eugene Debs had called for violence against the United States government... And then nobody did anything. It still wouldn't, in my opinion, be something that you would uh, y- you would prosecute him for. But he didn't say anything um, violent. A government stenographer took down the speech and turned in a report to federal authorities in Cleveland. Hmm. Hmm. That's a government stenographer. Hmm, okay. Debs was indicted under the Sedition Act, tried and condemned to 10 years in federal prison. In 21, Debs was ailing and many feared for his life. Amazing, it was Wilson's rampaging Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer himself who urged the president to commute Debs' sentence. I mean, Debs was a. Debs was like Ross Perot uh, plus Gary Johnson plus Pat Buchanan plus. John Anderson like rolled into one like he was he was as well known and as more famous than Ron Paul you know I mean he was he was a very big political figure and um, from Terre Haute Indiana uh, his own attorney general said commute the sentence Wilson wrote across the recommendation the single word denied he claimed that while the flower of American youth was pouring out of its blood to vindicate the cause of civilization, this man, Debs, stood behind the lines, sniping, attacking, and denouncing them. He will never be pardoned during my administration. Actually, Debs had not denounced the flower of American youth, but Wilson. He had, he had denounced Wilson and the other war makers who sent them to their deaths in France. It took Warren Harding, one of the, quote, worst American presidents, according to numerous polls of history professors, to pardon Debs when Wilson, a near great, quote unquote, would have let him die a prisoner. Debs and 23 other jailed dissidents were freed on Christmas Day, 1921. Uh, To those who praised him for his clemency, Harding replied, I couldn't do anything else. Those fellows didn't mean any harm. It was a cruel punishment. Um, An enduring aura of saintliness surrounded Woodrow Wilson, largely generated in the immediate post-World War II period, when his martyrdom was used as a club to be any lingering isolationists. So the, the idea that Woodrow Wilson was this great American figure was used after World War II, 
as uh, he was used as a heroic figure as propaganda to take people who were non-interventionist and who did not want the United States treasure and military and all the money that would come from that to be used to prop up dictatorships around the world like they did through the last hundred years. Um, But even setting aside his role in bringing America to war and his foolishness and pathetic floundering at the peace conference, Wilson's crusade against freedom of speech and the market economy alone should be enough to condemn him in the eyes of any authentic liberal. Yet his incessant invocation of terms like freedom and democracy continues to mislead those who choose to listen to self-serving words rather than look at actions. What the peoples of the world had in store for them under the reign of Wilsonian idealism can best be judged by Wilson's conduct at home. Walter Karp, a wise and well-versed student of American history, thought, though not a professor, understood the deep meaning of the regime of the Woodrow Wilson era. Today, American children are taught in our schools that Wilson was one of our greatest presidents. That is proof in and of itself that the American Republic has never recovered from the blow he inflicted on it. So so that's a little bit about his... um, his time economically and uh, and and internally on free speech, and just what a piece of garbage Woodrow Wilson was. Uh, so, his foreign policy could best be described uh, as the Bush Doctrine. So, if if you were alive and paying attention during Bush, then you understand exactly what Woodrow Wilson thought. Woodrow Wilson felt that it was the job of the American, um, the American uh, creed, the American nation. Uh, they needed to achieve their destiny and sit at the table and help guide the world to a liberal democracy. That if you just give people a taste of freedom and democracy, all humans will make the rational choice that Americans have made. Uh, and you know the, the this you saw this with Bush promoting Nathan uh, Saransky's book, uh, the case for democracy. That you know if we go in and we blow up this country and we instill a liberal democracy, then Iraq will just turn into a, a liberal democracy and they'll they'll become part of the world stage. And it completely ignores the fact that uh, there there are very real problems with um, Iraq itself. So why is that? And this is the final part, because I know this has been a long episode, but there's a lot here, and uh, hopefully you've gotten a lot out of it. Um, I'm sure you took a break, like I took a break. Uh, the, the, the part where it seemed like I took a break was me eating uh, spaghetti for dinner. <laughs> um, but I, I appreciate you listening if you have come back to this point in the episode, because this is really, really important. This is one of the more important uh, outcomes in all of the 20th century. So after the world, not not even after the war. So there's something called Sykes-Picot. Um, we've discussed it on the show, but a long time ago. Uh, and Sykes-Picot was an agreement, um, a secret 1916 agreement between the UK, France, and then Russia assented to. And the agreement, this is from Wikipedia, the agreement defined their mutually agreed spheres of influence and control in southwestern Asia. The agreement was based on the premise that the Triple Entente would succeed in defeating the Ottoman Empire during World War One, and they would then draw up the um, the Middle East. Uh, the agreement allocated to British control the areas roughly compromising the coastal strip between the Mediterranean Sea and the River Jordan, Jordan, southern Iraq, and an additional small area that included the ports of Haifa and Acre to allow access to the Mediterranean. 
France got control of southeastern Turkey, northern Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Now, none of these countries, like Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, these countries, Turkey, they didn't, they didn't exist. Those countries were created at the end of World War I. Uh, Russia was to get Istanbul, the Turkish Straits, and Armenia. The controlling powers were left to f- left free to determine the state boundaries within their areas. Further negotiation was uh, expected to take place. So, um, so you have Mark Sykes, Francois Georges Picot. Uh, the, you, the Sykes-Picot agreement basically drew the modern Middle East maps. And so so what are the problems with that? Um, and he also, as I mentioned, had the Balfour Declaration, um, a public statement issued by the British government during World War I announcing support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, then an Ottoman region with a small minority Jewish population. It read, His Majesty's government, uh, Dear Lord Rothschild... November 2nd, 1917. Dear Lord Rothschild, every conspiracy theorist just had their head explode. But again, remember what I told you, it was trying to get Jewish bankers to start stop loaning to Germans and start loaning to the British. Uh, Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. Quote, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment of an, in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine <laughs> or rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in other countries. Um... Israel was not established until after World War One. Let me look at the actual date here. Um, um, oh, sorry, Co- computer problems here. Uh, da, 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 da. After World War Two, uh, I should have written this down on. Um, So the UN created uh, Israel in 1947, and uh, Harry Truman was instrumental in getting it done because he felt that um, he was uh, he he was fulfilling biblical uh, biblical commandments. Uh, so he that that is why Israel was established. So um, so when you look at the division of the middle east so once once the war ends and they have um we're not even going to get into like all the problems with what what they did with the germans and how they punished the germans and how uh, they just humiliated them which led to hitler um you know that 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 can be a different show for a different time um but you know once they start carving everything up the the central powers get defeated and all of the colonial empires get dissolved. So as I told you, you have the dissolution of many different Russian lands. Um, you have some of those are not necessarily up for um, redrawing, but uh, you know, with with the Leninist government in place in Russia, they were they were they were a bit of a pain in the ass to deal with. 
Uh, you had Italy wanted different pieces. They never felt that they got what they were deserve, what they were owed in the uh, drawing of all the different maps. That's why Italy sided with Germany and the Nazis. Um, the Mussolini was allowed to take over because Mussolini was uh, Mussolini was essentially uh, a good fascist. He was celebrated around the world, and he didn't he didn't want to invade other countries. It's when if Hitler had not invaded Czechoslovakia, Poland. He would have been fine. He would, the elites around the world would not have made trouble with Hitler. But it's when he started invading other countries that they're like, um, Leroy Jenkins. So the, that's, that's when they really started to fight him. But Italy was very pissed that they didn't get as much property and, and as much territory as they wanted. Um, and basically France and Britain, uh, Wilson had his 14 points and how he thought it ought to go. And uh, formed the League of Nations. And basically, here's how it played out. These old powers who had won were doing the business of what old powers do. And then this little no-good, do-nothing, snot-nosed kid who thinks he knows everything comes in here and starts trying to tell us what to do. And he's got these 14 points that ought to be subscribed to. So we'll, we'll just pick out the points that we like to appease him. And yeah, okay, sure, we'll do this uh, League of Nations thing. Uh, so go home, take that to the Senate and see how that goes. And it fails, and uh, he's humiliated because the, his own country won't form, won't ratify the League of Nations Treaty. Uh, so that falls apart. Uh, and so then France, France and Britain draw up all of these different lines. And so they, uh, like I said, they draw up different parts of the country now the ottoman empire pre-1918 held most of the middle east as we know it the ottoman empire had a vast and a weak had a vast amount of land but had a weak central government and it allowed cultures that made up the ottoman empire to coexist within their own ancestral territory because there was no central government and so all these different tribal groups coexisted with each other really well uh and so the arabs didn't want to be under ottoman control and uh, so Arab rebels actually fought with Britain and France uh, to to be liberated. Uh, after the Ottoman Empire's defeat in World War One, a series of mandates conceived in secret in the earlier Sykes-Picot Agreement went into effect with the Treaty of Versailles. And these mandates effectively formed new states complete with borders and installed governance. And it was done with absolutely little regard for populations. It was done with how these colonial powers... They were essentially trying to extend the life of their colonies in these various areas and gain new colonies. France took regions known as Lebanon and Syria. Britain took Iraq and Iran and Palestine and what is now Jordan. Um, so uh, so it, it, the, the modern Middle East, uh, I, I think Iraq is a really good example. So the British install rulers with a centralized government for the first time in a, in a place called Iraq, which had never been called Iraq. So people are now, it's, it's like the Canadians work with the British, take over America, dr draw like a state, and go, uh, I, know you, I know you think you're part of uh, the... Um, the Indianapolis Club, but you're now all Ohioan. Oh, you're now all Kentuckians, uh, since I can't say Ohioans. <laughs> so uh, these these white people come in here and just start telling Iraqis that they're Iraqis, and they're like, I don't even know what that word means. What are you talking about, bro? That's exactly. I I think I nailed that uh, impression there. Um, so 
it was the, the Ottoman Empire was a confederation of ethnic tribal sheiks, and you know they had rebellions, and it was smashed. But like so, by nineteen twenty, um, the, 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 all right. Let me let me put it this way. I'll I'll stop reading the notes here. Um, they they draw the boundaries of Iraq, and the problem with Iraq to this day. Part of what we are trying to deal with in Iraq currently, after having destroyed it, is that you have three distinct groups in Iraq. You have the Sunnis, the Shiites, and you have the Kurds. And the Kurds are up north. And so the Kurds, this tribal group of Kurds after World War I, have a very distinct territory. And then they just have it all completely drawn into different countries. Part of them are in Turkey, part of them are in Syria, and part of them are in Iraq. And so if you're a rational person who understood anything about the region, you wouldn't have drawn this one nation, which is still trying to fight for independence 100 years later, into three different nations where they had to fight three different fronts. Um, And then they appointed people like uh, Faisal bin al-Hussein bin al-Ali al-Hassasimi, Faisal for short, uh, who was a dictator of Iraq. Does any of this sound familiar to you guys? So you you have the world powers drawing to these local populations of less thans in their eyes because, again, these people are not, you know, go back to the earlier part of the episode with racism. They are being told how to live their life, how they are to organize. And so now you have these loose confederation of tribal people who function dysfunctionally, but they still function, now you're slamming them into these fake countries, and now you have three warring tribes fighting for power of the central government based on Western values. And so it was just a complete failure of the liberal order, and it continued to breed hatred towards the West that we still exist, that still exists today. And these same people are still trying to uh, if we just give the Iraqis democracy, then they'll... But we'll we'll decide what the democracy looks like. I just cannot believe that Condoleezza Rice and George Bush and Donald Rumsfeld and all these guys and Barack Obama, none of these people ever read about Sykes-Picot. Like, you didn't see that it didn't work the first time. Like, I'm... Listen, I'm a smart person, I think. I have some measure of intelligence, but I don't have the level of education that these other guys do. I'm I'm a talk radio show host <laughs> i figured it out how have you not so all right so final thoughts um the government messes everything up and the more government you have the more things get messed up that's my final thoughts the w- w- war is war is the ultimate w- war is the war is what the state lives for because if you have a war then the state can inflate money, it can it can raise taxes, it can grow exponentially. And the organism known as the state loves them some war. And so that is why if you are a libertarian, you have to be anti-war. Because as, as you have seen throughout this very long episode, at every turn, in every place, the rulers at the top have no regard for the people at the bottom, they steal from the people at the bottom through inflation and taxes. 
to devise their own crazy ideas that don't work because they want to be significant themselves. And uh, war is how they do it. And so if you believe in individual liberty, if you believe in freedom, if you believe in free markets, then you cannot, it is not congruent with a war. So that is why you have to be anti-war. It's, it's, it's just very simple. So all of this is very complicated. All of this is very complicated because the government was involved in it. And it's very simple when people are not, in, when it's just people cooperating peacefully with each other. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Weirdo Libertarians. I hope that you got a lot out of it. A lot went into it. Uh, thank you guys for uh, supporting Weirdo Libertarians. We're going to give you a lot of content this week. Um, I think I have four more shows lined up. So I hope you're, uh, you're ready for some content. I've got, it, I've got it coming your way. So thanks so much for listening, and I will see you tomorrow.